0: 30 seconds has begun.
1: Thank you. All right, good evening, everyone. Let's call this meeting to order. This is the City of Sacramento Planning and Design Commission meeting. Today is Thursday, November 9th, 2023. The time is 5.30 p.m. Clerk, will you please call the roll to establish a quorum?
0: Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Zhang? Here. Commissioner Chase, here. Commissioner Lamas, here.
2: Commissioner Buckley, here.
0: Commissioner Caden, here. Commissioner Macias-Reed, here. Commissioner Young, here. Commissioner Wallace, here. Commissioner Boyd is absent. Commissioner Andrade, here. Commissioner Thompson is absent. And Chair Hernandez, here. Thank you, we have quorum.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, A reminder to members of the public, if you would like to speak on an item, please fill out a speaker slip. They are located in the back or up here in the front. Um, Once you uh, fill out a speaker slip uh, and your item begins, um, please uh, let us know. You will have three minutes to make your comments. We will now move on to the land acknowledgement. If everyone could please rise for the opening acknowledgments in honor of Sacramento's indigenous people, tribal, and tribal lands. To the Nisenan people, to the original people of this land, the Nisenan people, the Southern Maidu, Valley and Plains Miwok, Twintoon peoples, and the people of Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the Native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's Indigenous peoples' history, contribution, and lives. Thank you. Please remain standing for the pledge of I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, We have no items today for the director's report, so we'll move on to the consent calendar. This is item number one, approval of the meeting minutes, and we have a lot of them. We have the meeting minutes for August 24th, September 14th, September 28th, and October 26th. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips on this item.
1: Thank you. All right, commissioners, uh, I know a number of us have been absent um, for one or more of these meetings and uh, have abstained from approving the meeting minutes um, due to those absences. But um, as advised by the city attorney's office, uh, we ask for you to approve this package um, to express our confidence in the city clerk's office, in us commissioners for doing our due diligence, as well as the process, and that it is being followed as required by law. So we've all reviewed the meeting minutes. um, And unless we found any errors, um, I would like us to approve uh, this package of minutes all in one vote if anyone has any questions or comments at this would be the time otherwise happy to take a motion to approve i see um, commissioner excuse me vice chair wallace uh,
3: i'd like to move approval of the minutes
1: thank you we have a motion to approve by vice chair wallace i see commissioner macias reed
4: second.
1: motion in a second i don't see any other uh speakers listed so clerk will you please call the roll for a vote
0: thank you chair commissioner zhang Commissioner Chase, aye. Commissioner Lamas, aye.
5: Commissioner
0: Buckley, aye. Commissioner Caden, aye. Commissioner Macias-Reed, aye. Commissioner Young, aye. Vice, Vice Chair Wallace, aye. Commissioner Boyd is absent. Commissioner Andrade, aye. Commissioner Thompson is absent. And Chair Hernandez, aye. Thank you, the motion passes.
1: Thank you all very much. And thank you to the city attorney's office as well. Um, We also do not have any items for the public hearing agenda, but we do have a lot of items and a robust agenda for the discussion calendar. So let's move on to item number two. This is the status update on the revisions to vehicle and bicycle parking requirements, project file ID 2023-01375. And we have a, uh, a staff presentation by Ryan Dodge. Ryan, whenever you're ready.
6: Thank you. Good evening, Chair Hernandez and Commissioners. I am uh, Ryan Dodge, Associate Planner and Long Range Planning at CDD. And I came to you back in June on the 8th and the 22nd to talk about this project, introduce it to you, uh, but also to have two Commissioners appointed to the two working groups that we have, uh, Commissioners uh, Chase and Caden. And as a reminder, this project is about minimums, parking minimums for cars, parking maximums, Uh, as well as parking management and bicycle parking. And the policy context really is, uh, begins with the general plan update key strategy that city council approved in January, 2021. Uh, Later that year, a program was included in the housing element uh, that includes uh, ending parking minimums, as well as expanding parking maximums. And then the, the draft general plan and climate action and adaptation plan uh, has supportive policies and actions as well. And then item four this evening is, uh, uh, this project's including as well, the 2024 planning and zoning work program. So I wanna go over the work that we've done to date. We kicked off the project in July, created a website that has a, list, a listserv for folks to sign up and get updates on the project. Uh, did a lot of work about uh, around uh, existing conditions, uh, for car parking as well as management and bicycle parking. Uh, and, and the big piece that's in the staff report is a memo uh, from our consultant team uh, called Economic Conditions and Housing Development Funding Assessment. And the big takeaways from, from this memo uh, is that most car parking that's supplied is based on the market. So the area uh, that a project's located and, and the assumed needs uh, the folks there, um, for, for most projects, it's difficult to supply zero parking or less than what's around the area, uh, primarily because funding underwriters, uh, they need a lot of evidence. They wanna make sure it's financially feasible. And we find that most builders know that in most places, people want car parking, so they tend to just try to meet that market demand. And for the minimums and maximums, uh, maximums uh, for Sacramento, uh, we found that they've, they started at least 100 years ago. Uh, and the minimums, we did find documentation uh, back, I believe, 1950, so it's been about 75 years where we've had parking minimums. Uh, but nationwide, they started 100 years ago this year, uh, and then it gradually just spread across the nation. So I wanna talk about the working groups. We have two of them. Uh, We had a combined meeting on October 12th uh, because a lot of the material was relevant to everybody. It was an introduction to the the project. Uh, And so we got everybody on the same page and then we had all the members spend about three minutes talk about their interests for the project and any concerns they had. And we have a summary um, in the staff report as well. In general, what we found with the working groups is there's general support for getting rid of parking minimums, uh, but also we don't wanna see a one size fits all. Uh, We wanna look at the city a little bit differently, not just say, let's just do this citywide. Uh, Definitely heard a lot about having some flexibility, uh, especially around parking maximums. And for bicycle parking, uh, we did hear we wanna consider multiple types of bicycles, uh, especially Uh, Bicycles that are adaptable for people with disabilities in different shapes and being able to accommodate those as well So I do want to talk about upcoming work, there are two tasks that we're about to get working on Uh, It's parking maximums as well as bicycle parking And here for for what we're trying to solve is uh, problems or potential problems of excessive car parking So we're looking at different tools that we could use, such as maximums, Uh, could be shared parking, unbundled parking, the costs separate for it. Uh, But having scalable and flexible regulations overall uh, would be the aim. And so we seek the commission's input at this time uh, on this upcoming work to address potential oversupply of off-street parking in new development projects, especially housing development projects. So I welcome any feedback that you would have right now.
1: Thank you. Uh, We'll now open up the public comment period. Um, We have received one e-comment through the portal and that was before 5.30 p.m. today um, in support. Um, Clerk, are there any members of the public present here today that would like to make public comments?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have three speakers this evening on this item. Our first is Alyssa Lee, then Matt Anderson,
6: and then Jenny Maital. Uh Alyssa.
1: I'm sorry, one second.
7: Uh,
6: if I may, uh, there is a, another slide uh, having to do with bicycle parking. So either you can take it separately if you want, or would you like me to just go over that one?
1: I think we should do it all in one. One presentation. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll pause the public comment to complete the presentation. So on this last slide before, were you asking for commissioner feedback?
6: Yeah, so in the staff report, I included two tasks. One is related to parking maximums and it has a bunch of areas we're looking at. And then there's a, a subtask associated with it for bicycle parking. And so we're looking for feedback on both. Uh, I kind of stopped it there just so we could focus on car parking first and then the bicycle parking.
1: Yeah, I think we should complete the whole presentation and then do all the public comment and then bring it back to the commission, if that's okay.
6: Absolutely. Yeah, so for uh, bicycle parking, uh, we have regulations now. An example is um, we have like one space per two dwelling units or two spaces, whichever is greater in a lot of parts of the city. So we're looking at those types of things where uh, we'll think about do we want to require a mandate more bike parking spaces, uh, but also taking a look at guidelines and standards for where do we locate the bicycle parking, what type of bicycle parking facilities are appropriate and how do we space them and what types of bicycles that we would want to use for them such as cargo bicycles. Uh, So really that was the end of my presentation there.
1: Great. Thank you. We'll go back to um, unpausing public comment period. Thank you so much. Um, Would you mind calling the speakers again, please? Of
0: course, Chair. Uh, Our first speaker is Alyssa Lee, then Matt Anderson, and then Jenny Maital.
8: Hi, my name is Alyssa Lee. I live in Midtown in District 4. And um, overall, I'm really excited about the staff report and seeing the level of detail about what are the different options that the city can pursue besides the status quo of following pretty arbitrary parking minimums that aren't really based in data. um, And and definitely are not based in supporting our long-term goals on climate and housing affordability. So in general, I really um, urge the commission to read that report thoroughly and really think as you are giving these recommendations about many constituents like myself who don't own a car, wouldn't be able to really afford Um, Sacramento with a car and you know feel like we contribute to the city's goals by biking, by walking, by supporting public transit whenever we can and that um, the Commission's decisions really um, have a huge impact on allowing those kinds of behavioral choices to be made not at a disadvantage but really to support long-term climate and equity goals. instituting parking maximums is, you know, a really important lever that the city can flex that has huge impacts for the way the city is going to look and feel not only at, you know, a human level but also in terms of our climate crisis and housing affordability. So I think we really need to use every lever we can, and parking maximums might seem very restrictive, but it's really about that's actually much more based in data, you know, how much parking makes sense for the housing cost in this area, for the transit and other uh, availability of, um, other, of other transit types like biking and walking and really thinking about, we need to build the city for the goals that we want to have and the design we want to have. And I was just say Midtown is, you know, the, the walkable center of Sacramento. Many people would say that, but even still Midtown has up to 40% of its developable land Uh, devoted to to parking which is only really useful and accessible to a very small minority of of residents or even commuters non-residents and so really thinking about how we use the land is so important for meeting the climate goals i will say to meet the general plan goals of you know water retention urban heat island um, increasing space for trees without taking away space for housing all of these things, you can't do it while increasing parking and you also can't do it without reducing parking. Um, That's where the land and availability for those goals is going to come from. And it's such an important uh, report actually that you have put so much great time into. And so um, please uh, consider it very carefully that there are other cities have already instituted maximums like Portland, Oregon, San Francisco. Um, Some of them have done it in just specific neighborhoods or around transit stops. We can definitely take that further here in the Capitol and it would really uh, improve my life and residents like me. Thank you.
0: Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is Matt Anderson.
9: Good evening everyone, Matt Anderson, uh, resident of District Four as well. Um, first of all i just want to say thank you to you all and staff especially for getting this project going it's been a couple of years in the works i think city council directed it in like 2021 but there as you will see later a very full plate on planning staffs uh, to-do list so i'm really glad that this has gotten to the top and is something that's being addressed because i agree it's very important so so big thank you for that i'm really excited to see this initial report too um, i i am a little worried that we're even talking about Um, Parking minimums at all was a pretty explicit direction from Council just to abolish them and talk about parking maximums So I hope that's not too much of the conversation. We really get into the what are the maximums. What do we want to see there? Um, Just a few quick comments to you know add on to what the um, staff was asking Uh, One thing that is maybe a little out of the scope of this but very much related is it would be really great if Planning Commission could consider you know, requirements, incentives, anything that could encourage any new parking structures that are built now to be able to be easily retrofitted to housing moving forward in the future. I'm sure you're all aware that's one of the big problems with um, you know, building more housing downtown or other areas that it's just so expensive the way parking structures are built. Uh, they can't be easily retrofitted for various reasons, but if you build them now um, in the appropriate ways, it's much more cost effective to do that down the road. Um, and then just one quick comment. Oh, and then back on that note, there are other planning commissions that have already studied this subject. So not you know brand new material. Um, Santa Clara would be one. There've been a couple in SoCal. There've been a, a Boston and other places around uh, the country. So um, some examples and some reports to copy paste off of. Um, and then one bike parking comment. Uh, there was a new legislation that was passed requiring daylighting of intersections so, 20 feet from any intersection with a crosswalk or uh, pedestrian place to cross has to no longer have parking, essentially. So, I think that'd be a really prime opportunity as a place to look for bicycle parking as we're looking around the city. Uh, and I uh, encourage, echoing the comments that happened in the um, working groups, really encourage e bikes to be considered because, you know, being a biker, I see those exploding everywhere. I, I own one myself now as well. And so, I'm sure that's gonna kind of be the
0: Wave of the future. So I hope that's considered. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Our final speaker is Jenny Maital.
10: Good evening. My name is Jenny Maital. I live in the sixth council district, and I walked and took the light rail to get here today. Um, I'm also very pro getting rid of any sort of parking minimums. Um, I do own a car, but I'm hoping to be able to get rid of it and. Um, that is looking more feasible with the direction that the city is going so I'm very excited about that Um, something I do notice I take the light rail a lot because I live fairly close to it is and part of this is outside of the city limits, so it's out of your purview but there are a lot of just empty parking lots and there are a lot of parking lots that are bigger than the building that they serve so I would ask and again this wasn't really part of the scope I don't think but looking at for new development, um, there's a huge potential to co-locate uh, parking because, as you said, it's unfortunately not going to go away. The need for parking is not going to go away immediately. But we have a lot more available now than it appears we actually need. And it is a huge cost burden for new development. And we already have huge housing affordability issues, as everyone is aware. So. Um, I ask that you strongly consider instituting parking maximums, um, not having any parking minimums inside of the city, and thank you all for the good work. Yeah.
0: Chair, I have no more speakers on this item.
10: Thank you very much. We will now close
1: the public comment period and bring the discussion back to the dais. Um, Commissioners, do you have any questions, comments, feedback, thoughts, ideas for staff? Commissioner Chase.
5: Oh, thank you, Chair. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, I, I think, uh, comment that uh, Ryan's summary, I think, was very accurate of the, the you know, the uh, the first workshop meeting that we have. I uh, look forward to moving forward on it. Um, I think there was general uh, agreement that parking minimums should be, you know, uh, abolished. Um, no need for them. That doesn't mean, and I, and I go back to, it, I think one of my comments was, and I think it was, one size doesn't fit all so as we look at the city we're going to have to look at different areas midtown is very different than the Thomas and the south area and i think you know everyone realized that so uh that said I, I think and the uh the person's comment about the empty parking lots i mean ideal fodder for you know uh, housing and, and development but i think we're going to see that coming under uh you know other ordinances if you will but uh, yeah i look forward to you know con- continuing with this uh, with ryan and staff and uh, hopefully come up with something that is realistic and, and workable. Um, thank you, Chair. Thank you, very
11: much. Thank you. Um, I just had a quick question regarding um, item number four where it says that builders prefer a very high ratio of numbers if there were to be set maximums. Um, I don't know if you guys have gotten to that point yet, but I was wondering what that number is or if there was a suggestion.
6: And that's item number four for science um, agenda, in there, what it says?
11: Four, it's on, um, what page is it? <laughs> Hold on one sec. It's on page two of five at the bottom.
6: Of uh, the item four, not this one, I right? guess we're, so not in the staff report for the site we're talking about right now, but in item four.
11: Oh, maybe I'm on the wrong part of the, um, What is it? Page 2 of 64 in the PDF. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Page 2 of 64, yes.
6: Can you repeat the question for me, please?
11: Um, The question was that um, on page 2 of 64 in number 4, it says that builders prefer a very high ratio um, if there were to be set maximums. I was wondering if there was any suggestion as to what that, max, that ratio is.
6: Yeah, I believe in the staff report in the memo, uh, they do talk about it. I could look it up. Yeah, that's we can bring back in the yeah. I could follow up with a few if you want.
11: Or if it's in the staff memo, if I just missed it, I can go through it again. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Zhang. Um, Commissioners, any other comments, questions, direction, or feedback to staff? Commissioner Macias Reed.
4: I just feel like I have to make a comment because we've been talking about this since I've been on commission. So really excited that um, we're to this point. Um, thank you for the commissioners that participated in this. Um, I I too agree. I think that from what we've been seeing, you know, at least for myself on the last, in the last five years on the planning commission is that we certainly do need to um, revisit this. Obviously, it's been 75 years since we have. So um, parking, you know, eliminating um Parking minimums, I think, is warranted. And so, again, I just, you know, thank you, Commissioner Chase. But my other question was, love, would love to hear about, um, you know, your thoughts and on the experience and the participation that you've had as well, Commissioner Kaden.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Macias Reed. Commissioner Kaden.
12: Yeah, it was, um, uh, thank you, Chair. It was, uh, I think, a great meeting. I'm looking forward to the next few. I think it was uh, a large group. Um, so, that's just one one thing to note is that it felt like we all kind of got maybe our our two minutes and then that was like the extent of the meeting. So I I understand that's going to be split into a couple groups so I think hopefully that will facilitate a better discussion in the next few meetings. Um, I would totally agree with um, uh, uh, Commissioner Chase in the sense that it was pretty resounding in the support to eliminate minimums and I, I think you were saying in the presentation that while there was some support for it, there was maybe not total support or it was it would not be one size fits all. can you like talk a little bit more about that just because again my my experience of that was that it was somewhat resounding and um, as a uh, public commenter noted, it was pretty explicit in the direction from council. so just curious what your thinking is on that
6: yeah, I took notes during the, the working groups meeting and I can double check in there. I think part of the reason why I said general support is just because I don't recall everybody speaking to the parking minimum since we opened it up and also hearing flexibility in having that. I just wanted to make sure I didn't say everybody wants in and then hear because there was 20 plus people there and I just wanted to cover my ground and make sure somebody had
12: come out I'm like, no, actually I don't support that. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that to the extent we can, the conversation, and there's a lot to talk about, right? We're not just doing minimums. We're talking about maximums. We're talking about parking management toolkit. We're talking about bike bike parking. So, um, you know, uh, it does feel like we can turn the page a little bit on the parking minimums conversation and really focus the conversation on, on the parking management toolkit and some of the on-street concerns and, and parking maximums, which will be a whole debate. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Caden. We'll go back to Commissioner Messias Reed.
4: I, I did have one more, excuse me, one more question. I know in um, AB 894, right, is gonna um, kick in in 24. Um, and that's, I, I've talked a lot about shared parking and the opportunities that I think we have as a city for maximizing shared parking, especially in um, you know, parking lots and parking structures that are underutilized, especially in the central city. Um, and so I know it's saying it allows uh, for shared parking within 2,000 feet of project. I'm just curious if the city can or was, or if this group can or has discussed, like, you know, that that particular, like, if, if you're um, mandated to at least have that if we're going to go above and beyond in terms of um, what our goals are for, for, for shared parking. Like, um, if we can allow it within a greater... Um. Uh, you know, area as opposed to what's already state managed, state mandated.
6: Yeah, we have staff devoted to analyzing all the bills. so I'm still waiting to hear back on the applications of all of them. So I don't have that at at this time. But we're definitely uh, taking a look at it. It's on our radar, and we're gonna analyze it and figure out what we can and cannot do.
4: Okay. Um, the other thing is, I I know Matt Ironman was was parking manager. I think I've heard he was uh, promoted, so congratulations to Matt. Um, But I know that, again, in the past, I have, you know, the city has um, some partnerships with the state um, in some parking structures downtown, and I think and know that there is an opportunity to grow that partnership. So I would certainly like to see uh, us continue to pursue that. through conversations with the Department of General Services because I think that's you know, the, that's the organization that oversees the uh, parking for the state. Um, so I really would like to see opportunities for that. And then of course you know for some of the existing um, multifamily units in the downtown Midtown area that already have you know, maybe some underutilized lots, um, we already have you know where you already have partnerships there let's continue to explore those options as well.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Messias reed Next, we will go to Vice Chair Wallace.
3: Thank you, Chair. Um, I just have some notes maybe to the future work of the um, working group. Uh, There are two groups that I I just did a search of the PDF to see. Um, Really, like, um, drilling down on the needs of business and parents in terms of um, sort of our ability to... Locate parking where people need it, (laughs) and um, also be um, sort of aware of the fact that our economic development strategy, especially for the grid, is really focused on bringing a lot of people down here all at once, and then shipping them back out to wherever they live. Um, And that needs to be sort of thought through um, really deliberately about how availability and accessibility of nearby parking especially at night is really important to like the retail hospitality industry. And so I, I just wanna make sure that I highlight that and that that gets discussed because it's also relevant to our city budget and our economic growth and jobs and opportunities in the region. So um, I know it's really important from a land use and a sustainability perspective to focus on reducing parking, but let's be targeted and strategic about that.
1: Thank you Vice Chair. Next we have Commissioner Lamas.
13: Thank you Chair. Um, thanks staff for the report. Um, thanks for the public comments and thanks to the committee members for um, participating in that um, working group. Um, I, I uh, One of the things that caught my attention was the electric bikes um, and trying to be mindful of the parking for um, that type of mode of transit. Uh, I know there's uh, personally owned electric bikes and I, I think that's what the our um, our speaker was referencing there's also the privately owned I mean I'm sorry the the corporately owned electric bikes um, and so I, I'd be interested you know to hear more about what the committee um, or maybe I, I don't know if you guys got into those kind of details but at least I'd be a recommendation for the committee to consider um, how to accommodate both of those um, types of, of transit you know uses Um, and I'm wondering if the city has any kind of uh, current agreements with electric bike companies now I know I feel like there were a couple of companies that were operating in Sacramento I know but I know the pandemic um, uh, had companies pull back a lot of their bikes Um, but I know there's still some here so I'm wondering does the city have a a current partnership with electric bike companies? and would there be a possibility to engage them as part of these discussions to accommodate parking for scooters or the bikes, which I know have been a a cause of concern for some folks, having them on the sidewalks and stuff like that. Yeah, thank
6: you. Um, For the the bike share, we call them shared rideables, Public Works oversees it. I believe they also permit it and uh, work with them on bike parking, my understanding is, uh, the, uh, the bicycles and there's at least one company here uh, that I'm aware of and the scooters, they're supposed to be locked up to an official bike rack and not just a pole or left on a sidewalk. Um, but I can't speak too much more to that, but as far as e-bikes and the types of bicycle parking facilities that can accommodate e-bikes, it's definitely a part of this project that we're gonna take a look at. Our consultant team is looking at best practices right now. Perfect. Thank you for that.
13: Thank you, for my time.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Lamas. Thank you, staff. Seeing no other speakers in the queue Um, I also want to thank staff for your work on this this has been a long time coming I appreciate um, all of the engagement as well as from our two commissioners who serve on the working group Um, I concur with a lot of the comments that have been made in particular um, with the vice chair and and do believe that uh, as we think about um, parking maximums that we support um, all sacramentans um, who are visiting and who are here parents um, as well as not just businesses, but our small businesses um, in the central city area. Um, One thing I would also encourage our two commissioners as they move forward in the working group um, is to, uh, as I think it was mentioned earlier, but really focus on safety as well. Um, as what, what that means, um, for example, for just myself, you know, as a, a single woman who is traveling by herself and making sure that wherever I park, at whatever time of day, um, that it is a, is a safe area. Um, one question uh, I would like to um, raise as well as we're thinking about parking minimums is this other uh, initiative of moving towards electrification and electric vehicles, that if we are going to have um, minimo- uh, parking minimums, that, you know, what does um, public EV charging look like in that space as well? Um, So those are my only comments, Um, really appreciate um, everyone's participation on this and um, if there are no other questions or um, discussion items we will uh, continue on to the next item. Um, This uh, does not require a vote Um, so thank you very much Ryan and staff for this uh, presentation. Um, We'll now begin with item number three. This is the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance Preliminary Recommendations, File ID 2023-01201. We have a staff presentation by Greta Seuss, Associate Planner. Um, Greta, whenever you're ready. Thank
14: you. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Greta Seuss. Uh, It's good to see you all. I'm an Associate Planner with our Long Range Planning Team. And I'm pleased to present to you tonight our preliminary recommendations for the Mixed Income Housing Ordinance. We are seeking commission input and feedback on these recommendations tonight. So I'll start my presentation today with a reminder of the project origins and purpose. Uh, Our mixed income housing ordinance, which was last updated in 2015, establishes requirements for how new residential development contributes to the production of affordable housing in our city. And the city's adopted housing element provides direction for us to review and consider revisions to the current ordinance in program H1, specifically committing the city to evaluating the effectiveness of the current ordinance, conducting an economic feasibility study to guide decisions on any changes to the ordinance, engaging a broad range of stakeholders, and considering amendments to the ordinance with the goal of increasing the amount of affordable housing built in the city. While ensuring that the requirements do not pose a constraint to overall housing production. Regarding where we are in the process and what steps will be from here to ordinance adoption, we've split this into three main phases. The first phase the, was the release of a draft report in August, and during that phase, we sought questions and feedback on the feasibility analysis, as well as input on draft policy objectives and potential ordinance options. Phase two, where we are now, includes the release of preliminary recommendations for a revised ordinance. During this phase, we're seeking input on these recommendations. And following this, in the last phase, we'll move on to final recommendations and then bring a final ordinance for adoption. So I'd like to first provide some background information on this ordinance for those who may be listening in tonight who are not as familiar with this project or our draft report materials. The ordinance originates from the year 2000 when it was first adopted. This ordinance, uh, the original ordinance was in place from 2000 to 2015 and it applied in new growth areas only which are shown in gray on this map. Developments with 10 or more units were required to provide 15% on site inclusionary units. And projects either generally provided a site for a multifamily low income housing tax credit project within the development or provided inclusionary for sale units within the project. The ordinance was then updated in 2015, post recession, when infill development was in its nascent stages in the city. And the program converted to a citywide per square foot impact fee program. The current fiscal year fees right now are $3.54, and there is a lower fee of $1.53 per square foot in uh, the housing incentive zone shown in yellow on this map. The program exempts certain projects from paying the fee, including multifamily units over 40 dwelling units per acre or single family or duplex dwelling uh, projects over 20 dwelling units per acre. So that's our higher density projects. And then projects that provide 10% affordable units on site also do not pay the fee. The current ordinance also has a requirement for areas, uh, projects that include 100 acres or more in size to provide a mixed income housing strategy. Um, And this program currently brings in an average of about a million dollars per year in fees through the housing impact fee requirements on um, residential development We released our draft report in August which included three main components I'll provide a brief overview of the findings which were reviewed in detail at our last meeting with the Commission on August 24th The first part of the report was an analysis of the performance of the current 2015 and previous 2000 mixed income housing ordinances. And the key takeaways from this analysis were that the ordinances were developed under different market circumstances. Similar affordable housing production resulted under each ordinance. The city's housing production generally followed statewide housing production trends under each ordinance. And the current ordinance should be reevaluated considering current development trends, market feasibility, and policy goals. The next part of the report included a survey of uh, requirements in other jurisdictions, locally and non-locally, and seven deep dive case studies on different jurisdictional requirements. Some of the themes found in our region are a 10% affordable requirement or option, an in-lieu fee payment being allowed, Um, Fee structures varying across um, being per per square foot or per unit or percent of uh, sale price. Incentives being offered for uh, higher density projects and impact fee reductions for affordable units. And among the larger city themes, we saw a menu of compliance options being offered, variation by market area or area median income required, um, in lieu fee payments being allowed, Per-square-foot fees were common among West Coast cities and incentives for on-site units such as density allowances, parking reduction, or impact fee reductions. Provided here is a summary table of program structures and fee amounts from the seven case study jurisdictions. Among these, we saw an average of about 10% requirements with some going higher, and in lieu fee amounts ranging from $6,000 $6,000 to $1,000 uh, through $10,000 per market rate unit, um, $2, $250,000 to $478,000 per affordable unit or per square foot fees ranging from $19 to $45 per square foot. Lastly, the report provided a feasibility analysis of alternatives on development, such as on-site requirements and different fee levels. Because of varying market cycles, the analysis looked at two, two at results for two points in time, the current market and, prior, and a prior more favorable market. The study found that on-site affordable units, or substantially increased housing fees, are a challenge for both for sale and rental projects under current conditions, which are less favorable than in the recent past. And under more fee- favorable recent conditions, um, for sale projects were in a better position to sustain on-site requirements, especially projects on large sites that would be able to set, set aside a site for a 100% affordable project. And rental projects are challenged to support an on-site affordability requirement in most submarkets, even with more favorable market conditions. But the feasibility found um, a support support for the removal of the zero dollar rate for the housing impact fee for high density projects and a higher housing fee in some locations. In addition to the release of the draft report, we released draft policy objectives to guide our decision making in this project. These objectives are to increase affordable housing production, ensure long term affordability, affirmatively further fair housing anti-displacement, mixed income communities, and not posing a a constraint to overall housing production. And these policy objectives have guided the preliminary recommendations that we'll be reviewing today. Staff also conducted phase one outreach on the draft report. These policy objectives and potential ordinance options with multiple groups. We met with the city's housing policy working group, which is comprised of 40 plus individuals representing housing builders, advocates, service providers, and more. We also presented to the planning commission and held multiple focus groups to get feedback on the materials. From these groups, we received comments on the feasibility analysis, potential ordinance options, and the policy objectives. On the feasibility analysis, there was some disagreement with the use of a prior market evaluation. Some expressed concern with the source of development cost data and critiqued the timing of the study relative to market cycles, feeling that we usually study the ordinance in more difficult markets. Regarding potential ordinance options, some builders expressed a desire to keep the existing ordinance in place and that on-site requirements and fees on developments are seen as a tax or disincentive to infill development. There was general support for having varying requirements by sub-market. Some housing advocates requested focusing policy changes on targeting rents at 60% AMI or lower, and stated that an inclusionary policy is the best way to affirmatively further fair housing. On the policy objectives, there was only one major comment on, on these, and that was a disagreement with a policy objective six, um, not constraining overall housing production. This was stated as a concern due to variation in costs and rents across different developments. So moving on to the recommendations. On this slide is a summary of the ordinance structure. The preliminary recommendations are a citywide on-site affordability requirement with an in-lieu fee option. The in-lieu fees vary by market area, and we're proposing a phased-in approach of the fees tied to housing production. There are uh, there's a proposal to provide incentives for on-site unit production, such as reduced fees um, or infrastructure costs or use of density bonus and then a a requirement for larger projects to provide a higher on-site percent requirement. We're proposing that projects with more than 10 proposed dwelling units provide affordable units on-site with a menu of options to meet the requirement. For instance, a rental development of more than 10 units would have the option to provide 12% of the units at 70% AMI, 10% at 60 AMI, and so forth. The, requir- the requirements vary between for sale and rentals due to the difference in area median incomes to afford each project product type. If project applicants do not want to provide affordable units on site, per square foot fees may be paid, also referred to as in lieu fees. In lieu fees are proposed to range between the current housing impact fee rate of $3.54 And $10 per square foot, and these vary by market area of the city. When compared to the cost of on site affordable unit provision in all geographic areas of the city, rental in lieu fees equal to approximately 15 to 30 percent of the cost of providing the affordable units on site, and for sale in lieu fees equal to 40 to 65 percent of the cost of providing units on site. These in lieu fee levels are reflective of our findings from the feasibility study. Part of what we heard in our outreach were concerns about the current market and feasibility and a lack of flexibility or responsiveness in the current ordinance. So due to our less feasible market conditions, we're proposing a phase in of the proposed in lieu fees that is tied to market rate housing production. The initial fee rate as proposed is the current housing impact fee rate, but removes the exemption for high density projects and removes the housing incentive zone. Due to less existing less feasible market conditions, um, this phase in is tied to market rate housing production. This proposal is to have the first step of the fee go into effect on January 1st of 2025 The remaining two steps would be implemented in the next fiscal year after market rate housing production reaches 2,500 units in the calendar year. For context, the average yearly market rate unit production between 2017 and 2022 was approximately 2,500 units. And this number has been selected as an indicator of a healthy housing market. This graph shows citywide housing production from 2013 to 2022. The gray portion of each bar represents market rate units excluding excluding accessory dwelling units. The remaining green portion of each bar represents deed restricted affordable units and accessory dwelling units. The red dotted line shows the proposed threshold amount of market rate housing production that would be required to phase in steps two and three of the full fee in lieu fee rates. It's proposed that ADUs and deed restricted affordable units are not considered in our threshold housing production trigger because financing for ADUs and affordable housing projects are not subject to the same market forces that market rate housing is. Next, using the central city as an example, this graph showcases the cost. For a high density housing project to comply with the existing and proposed ordinances on a per square foot basis The first column shows what a project would pay under the existing ordinance Which exempts high density projects from paying the three dollar fifty four per square foot fee? The next three columns show the per square foot cost of compliance with the recommended on-site affordable unit provision options And finally, the last two columns show the per square foot cost of compliance using the proposed in lieu fee payment option. The first orange bar shows the proposed initial fee rate of $3.54 per square foot. And the second bar shows the final fee implementation of $10 uh, per square foot. Again this is an example of what compliance cost comparison would be for a project in the central city but is meant to show the difference between the current requirement and the proposed recommendations. While we are proposing an onsite requirement, state law requires that alternatives to onsite requirement, uh, to onsite affordable unit production be offered, such as in lieu fees. And as shown on the last slide, it will be more cost effective for a developer to pay an in in lieu fee rather than provide the units onsite. So in order to incentivize on-site unit production, we're recommending exploration of ways to incentivize the on-site unit production through a reduction of impact fees or infrastructure improvement costs. I'd also like to highlight the use of density bonus as an option if units are income-restricted for at least 55 years. Additional ordinance components as proposed include a minimum term of 30 years for on-site affordable units, allowing projects to calculate the affordable unit requirement as a percentage of bedrooms or livable, livable square footage. For sale affordable homes could be made affordable using a shared appreciation note or a use of scaled equity over time, and land dedication would be offered as a second alternative. Lastly, the preliminary recommendations propose a higher requirement for large projects that include 750 or more units and a site size of 15 or more acres. This increased requirement is due to the ability of these projects to leverage state funds such as bonds or tax credits. For these large projects, land dedication would be the only available alternative. In summary, this is a comparison of the current ordinance structure and what we've outlined as our recommendations today. Today's ordinance is a citywide impact fee-based program which requires residential projects to pay $3.54 per square foot, or in some areas, a reduced rate of $1.53 per square foot. High-density projects are not required to pay this fee. The proposed ordinance introduces an on-site affordable requirement with an in lieu fee option. Projects citywide would be required to build affordable units on site or pay a per square foot fee ranging from the current HIF rate of $3.54 or up to $10 at full free fee implementation. Of notable importance is the difference between how revenues generated from the impact fee based program can be used when compared to in lieu fee revenues. The current housing impact fee is based on a nexus that allows the fees to be spent on affordable workforce housing. In lieu fees, on the other hand, would be able to support all types of affordable housing, including permanent supportive housing projects. In terms of next steps, we will be conducting outreach with focus groups, and we will be um, attending city council on November 28th to present these recommendations. We are also accepting written comments on these recommendations through November 23rd. And as I stated earlier, the final recommendations for the ordinance will be released in the winter. This concludes my presentation and I'm available for questions along with Matt Hertel, Pr- principal planner and our, David, uh, our consultant David Dozema from Kaiser Marston. Thank you,
1: Greta. We'll move on to public comment period next. Um, we, I do want to mention that uh, we have received a number of, of e-comments uh, through the portal. We are now at a total of nine public comments Eight of them are opposed. Clerk, are there any members of the public here today who would like to comment on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have four speakers this evening on this item. Our first speaker is Chris Norum, then James Allison, uh, John, and then we have Matt Anderson.
15: Good afternoon or evening, commissioners. Chris Norum, North State Building Industry Association. Uh, We're opposed to this measure, um, but appreciate the staff's uh, outreach to us and work. Uh, We share some of the goals of creating more affordable housing, but we really have serious concerns about what this is going to do to uh, the feasibility. Um, State law says that you cannot create policy that would make housing infeasible um, under SB 330. Your staff report says this makes housing infeasible. Um, We would contend even the um, in-lieu fee program, Uh, is infeasible, as uh, demonstrated by many of the comments that you guys have already received. Um, We have policy considerations and concerns. Um, There isn't any analysis that actually says or shows or demonstrates how 2,500 units would actually equal a healthy housing market that would be sufficient to trigger the higher um, in lieu fee program. So that's maybe something that you guys should look at. Our concerns is that it's gonna raise prices. This is basically a tax on housing. It's gonna raise prices and create more missing middle problems for uh, the city. It will have the effect of driving new housing out of the city and people will have to drive even further to come back in here, literally, creating more pollution um, and issues for the region on a a greenhouse gas basis. Um, Our analysis also illustrates, and I'd be happy to send this to you, that when you actually look at how many units of affordable housing are being built, on a pro rata basis to how much housing is being built, not the population of the city, but the actual numbers of housing units that are being generated in like Folsom or Elk Grove versus the city, and then how many units are being built that are being based off of the fees that are currently being charged. Folsom and Elk Grove are actually producing more affordable housing than the city of Sacramento. So even though the city is doing great in terms of aggregate numbers, it demonstrates that there's room for improvement on the current fee program. Um, So we we strongly support the current fee program. We think that it's working. Uh, We think that there's maybe some ways you could tweak it by adjusting it the way that they do in Folsom. Um, We also fundamentally believe that there's uh, issues that you guys should look at around um, having a ballot initiative. I know it's not your bailiwick to do that, but uh, there needs to be a broader base of funding if we're really going to get the numbers we need to generate the housing that everyone wants. Um, And the mayor's also brought up the idea of having an EIFD. I think that that's something that you guys should be looking at as alternative funding mechanisms. Um, I do also want to mention mention one other quick item and that was that even our affordable housing builders um, are opposed to this the ones who are for-profit affordable housing builders because the designation of inclusionary zoning in the city makes it so that they um, get scored differently on state funding and they actually would lose out um, and so When this issue was raised to the staff, they said well maybe we should go change that state guideline as opposed to actually adjusting the policy to make sure that we don't have a conflict where we have builders who want to build affordable housing units on the ground in the city who are now being disincentivized and not receiving the same kind of grant monies and tax incentives that they otherwise would be. Thank you for your comments, your time is complete. Thank you for your uh, consideration.
1: Thank you.
0: Our next speaker is James Allison. Then we have John Vignocci and Matt Anderson.
16: Good evening, my name is James Allison with the Midtown Association, representing over 1200 properties in the central city. Our mission is to make Midtown the Center for Culture, Creativity and Vibrancy in Sacramento's urban core. I'm here today to express our concerns regarding the proposed recommended changes to the city's mixed income housing ordinance. First, I would like to thank staff for the extensive work that they have done to get us here. We are extremely appreciative of the meetings and the dialogue. Across the board and across all income levels, there is simply not an adequate supply to meet the growing need for housing units, driving continued rent increases. The only solution that can address both of these challenges is simply building more housing. The city is already seeing affordable unit production at a rate higher than that sought by current goals. In fact, according to the city's 2022 housing element progress report, 56% of all units produced were low or very low income, a higher percentage than the 37% sought by the city. Compare that to the Kaiser Marston jurisdiction analysis, which looks at comparable local jurisdictions with inclusionary requirements, and you'll see Roseville at 3%, West Sacramento and Folsom at 8%, Davis at 18%, and San Jose at 12%. Under the current model, Sacramento is already far outpacing comparable cities in affordable housing production. How, instead, might this trend continue with no modifications to the existing ordinance? A prescriptive on site requirement removes the ability for developers to include affordable units at a level that makes sense for each individual project. Currently, most new multifamily projects in Midtown include some form of affordability component, but they are able to do so at a level that retains feasibility. This requirement would remove that flexibility. Additionally, the change from the central city's zero dollar impact fees at fee designation to the highest in lieu fees of any submarket is simply an absurd prospect. This would be a clear signal that the city leadership no longer prioritizes infill development. Finally, there is no feasibility analysis on the specific recommendations now that the DOU fees have been increased. Without a holistic analysis of the current conditions, there can be no conclusion that any market can sustain these requirements. By its own policy objectives, the city has established a set goal of implementing policy that does not pose a constraint to overall housing production. These changes will create a serious obstacle to new housing production and are a complete counter to the city's own objectives. Instead, we should be looking for new ways to incentivize affordable housing production, reducing barriers and easing financial constraints. Thank you.
1: Thank
0: you. Thank you for your comments. Our next speaker is John Vignocci.
17: Yes. Good evening, Chair Hernandez, Vice Chair Wallace, and Commissioners. My name is John Vignocci and I help lead the Urban Capital Development Collective located here in Midtown. I'm also the chair of the Region Build, of Region Builders, uh, which is a subcommittee of Region Business. Uh, you remember, you may remember our project, the Grace, which we presented to you on May twenty-fourth or twenty-fifth. Yes. Thanks for your support. Uh, this project included 20% low-income housing units as part of a 41-unit mixed-income uh, housing development at the corners of 15th and G Street. I'm pleased to share that we are converting that project to 100% deed-restricted workforce housing. We're currently developing a pipeline of over 400 of these workforce housing units, and have 30 of those under construction currently at the corners of 16th and E Street. Uh, 100% of these units will be deed-restricted. They're transit-oriented development with no parking, although they are built around many underutilized parking garages and they're all in urban infill uh, midtown sites. Uh, I'm here in strong opposition to the mixed income housing ordinance. This policy would make it harder for our firm to deliver privately financed deed restrictive workforce housing, which is the type of housing we all want to see. I have a lot of respect for staff and I hate to say this after all their hard work, but this policy threatens to kill the city of Sacramento's superstar housing production status. The housing types most likely to absorb this fee and this type of policy, guess what they are, right? Greenfield track homes. Okay, not urban infill. This is not the type of housing we're entirely thrilled about building. We called our firm Urban Capital, not Suburban Capital. We are playing with, or you are playing with fire. Look no further than Portland, San Francisco, Barcelona, and many other cities who have tried inclusionary housing and are actually considering giving it up and abandoning them because their housing pipelines have shriveled. None of these jurisdictions create affordable housing at the rate of Sacramento. The policy simply does not work, and when implemented, they kill housing production. Why? The best way to create more affordable housing is to create more housing. Mixed income housing ordinance will not lead to more housing. It will lead to less housing because it increases the cost of housing. And when you increase the cost of development and housing, you're not taking money out of my pocket. You're taking money out of the renter's pocket and the homeowner's pocket if it gets built at all, right? And every time you increase the cost of a project by a dollar, you're really increasing it by the cost of $1.50 to $1.50 because equity and debt, the capital that's needed to build this housing isn't free. Furthermore, you're taxing these future residents, if the housing is ever built, to finance capitally inefficient affordable housing units that cost $650,000 a unit. The city or governments could buy our housing right now for 300 dollars to $350,000 a unit. Why is this? This model, this affordable housing model of low-income housing tax credits is broken at the state and federal level. Sacramento cannot go backwards in this policy. We need to broaden the tax base. Development impact fees are very inefficient. They're very narrow tax base. So Mr. Mayor, if you're listening, let's team up. Let's get a housing measure, a permanent housing revenue measure that f- finances capital-efficient affordable housing. Thank you for your consideration and my comments.
11: Thank you.
0: Thank you for your comments. Our final speaker is Matt Anderson.
9: Good evening again, Chair, Vice Chair, Commission. Uh, my name is Matt Anderson. I just live here. I actually don't do anything with construction or housing uh, or planning, Uh, but I'm interested in it because I live here and biking here from 10 blocks away, I think I passed 13 tents just going down the street on my bike and that clearly shows the need for more housing. Um, I'm not gonna get into the policy details because I can't speak to them, but I can tell you that we're not building enough housing. So uh, I really would request that you do everything you can to look at ways we can make more housing as much housing as we can i you know i forget the number 2500 is that enough units to be built aren't are we, should we can we build more please <laughs> uh anything you can do for that is appreciated um and uh, thank you for your time and considering this item
1: thank you
0: Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no more speakers.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, the public comment period is now closed. We will bring the discussion back to the dais. Commissioners, do you have any questions, comments for staff or for discussion? Commissioner Chase. <clears throat>
5: no, thank you, Chair. Um, Greta, I had a question on something that was mentioned in the staff report, the, a shared appreciation note. Could you, I mean, I have a pr- pretty good understanding, of it, but is that used anywhere in our region uh,
14: now? I'm not sure if it's used in our region, but it is something that we're researching further. Um, I don't know, David, if you're aware of any local jurisdictions that are using it. but
7: um, uh, It's a common structure, but I'm not not sure
14: about specific jurisdictions in your
7: region. Sorry.
14: We can provide more background information on that.
5: It's an interesting concept, but I just didn't know if it's out there being used. So, thank you.
14: Thank you, Commissioner Chase.
1: Commissioner Messias Reed.
4: Thank you, Chair. I um, always want to start out with the in, in, tremendous work that staff has done. This is so much work, right? Um, wow. Um, so, kudos to the research you've done, the work you've done. Um, I want to start by mentioning um, a San Francisco Chronicle article dated July 24th of 2023 titled SF tries to spur housing development by reducing fees and affordable housing unit requirements. Um, it speaks to one of whatever speakers just mentioned, which is um, they had in, they have and have had an inclusionary um, requirement for some time. Um, and they're essentially... Um, they had the, the County Board of Supervisors approved um, essentially slashing requirements for rentals and condos and reducing those impact fees, hoping that those changes will allow dormant projects to stir to life. Um, I certainly don't want us to be in this position. Um, I, I wanted to also mention obviously high interest rates are impacting the housing market across the board right now, but they're certainly putting a strain on development financing and feasibility we we can see this um and i'll speak more to that in a second um i i definitely again through reading this and just a lot of research that i've done i my one of my biggest concerns is that the increasing cost of housing at a time when hard costs and for those of you who don't know what hard costs are in development it's you know uh, construction costs which have risen material and labor costs which have risen um, and development impact fees right which have risen um, uh, that are recently recently increased with the city as well will make it infeasible for new development to occur. And if development is able to pencil out with these proposed increases in costs in this environment, I'm also concerned that those costs will then trickle down to our renters and to our potential future home buyers, um, new home buyers, first time homebuyers um, who are already financially stressed um, to, to either afford rent or to purchase a home. Um, I also think we need to take, take into consideration that I, no development means no jobs. You know This could have a negative impact on our construction trade in, industry and the jobs that they employ. Um, I also want to say that in the feasibility analysis, it shows infeasibility at current market market conditions, um, which are getting worse. And I'll speak to one of the e-comments um, that was made that, you know, was public comment um, from Ken Turton. He said that in Q3, quarter three of 2023, land escrows are down 92%. Um, and those currently in contract are not for housing projects. Obviously, that's an indicator that we're already seeing land escrow purchases for housing slow down. Um, and, uh, and if, you know, with this uh, feasibility analysis we're seeing infeasibility at, at, at market conditions, it's, I feel like it's, um, you know, we have to make a responsible and careful and well thought out decision. Um, lastly, I just want to remind the commission, and again, and these are just comments that I have and then I'll pass it along. Um, I just want to remind the commission that when an entitlement application comes to the city planning staff or us as a commission, um, that doesn't mean that the project is going to be built, right? Um, it, at the end of the day, uh, it has to pencil out through all of those, you know, burdens and, and you know, issues that I that I raised earlier: hard costs, soft costs, all of those things. They have to pencil out at the end of the day. Um, and we could have you know, 100 projects come here that have affordability or not market rate. And, and you know, I think we've even asked this, and I've, I've certainly brought this up at Commission before, is like, man, we, you know, before we went to more of a policymaking body, we were seeing a lot more entitlements, right? And we streamlined that process, I think, for the better. Um, we're seeing less entitlements come to us, but I'm curious of the entitlements that do come to us or that come to the city. What percentage of them are actually producing housing? What percentage of those developments are actually being built, right? Because that, to me, shows the greater impact um, of the decisions that we're making. Um, and I think with that, I'll just say that I urge planning staff and city council um, to not make housing production more constrained than i believe it already is
1: thank you commissioner Messias Reed. next we have commissioner kaden
12: thank you chair and um yeah thank you to staff i mean this is an incredibly complicated topic and i know there's been a tremendous amount of work um and you've received a lot of feedback on this topic so um thank you for all of your work on this um i i think i wanted to just start by acknowledging the common goal, right, which is that I think we all share the goal that we want more subsidized affordable housing. Um, You know, there's an income level that the market is likely never going to, you know, provide affordable housing for, so I think there is this massive need, of course, for the stability, the opportunity that deed-restricted affordable housing is, is going to provide. Building that affordable housing is incredibly expensive right and even with some of the new funding sources that that have come online in the last few years you know we have nowhere near enough money to actually build our way from a subsidization standpoint um uh enough homes to actually meet that need so i think what we're what we're talking about is basically like, how do we increase funding for affordable housing um and this was brought up a little bit in some of the public comments you know i'm a believer in progressive taxation and i i think we should all be sharing the responsibility for funding affordable housing. I think in in a perfect world, we would do that through something like an increased property tax. Um, You know, of course, we're incredibly boxed in by Prop 13 in California. That makes um, that a huge challenge. You know, we can't even increase other taxes um, without going directly to voters and getting that 2 thirds. Um, But to me, that's actually kind of part of why we turn to solutions like inclusionary zoning in the first place, like impact fees, because we don't have to go to voters for these things, right? And so there, it is politically an easier lift, right? And I think what, part of what makes it even more popular is that by only applying this tax to new housing, the people with the most privilege, the people who own their homes already, are not paying a dime. They're not contributing to that, right? So I think my my overarching concern is, is I think, similar to what um, other folks have, have said. Um, when you add hundreds of thousands of dollars of new fees to an apartment project, the developer does not just eat that fee. I think that would be very convenient for us if that was the case. Um, it would be an easy solution. Um, but what happens in reality is that that tax and that, that fee is passed on, right? It's passed on to the non-affordable units in the form of higher rents. In many cases, the project um, still gets built, but the non-subsidized units are rented at higher rates. In other cases, you know, on projects that were on a razor's edge in terms of feasibility um, and would have been built before don't get built now. And um, that's because the lender can just go elsewhere. So I, I think we just need to be honest, right? There's, there's this trade-off here that we have to talk about, which is that you know, we're funding some affordable housing, but it's at the expense of, of the other renters who don't get to live in the deed-restricted units and they're fighting over a smaller number of units overall. Um, I think I mentioned this last time when we came to planning commission before, but I think it's a really important reminder. 90% of lower income households in California live in market rate units. So in Sacramento, that's 90,000 of our 100,000 some odd lower income households. 90,000 lower income households living in market rate housing. And, And I think in a really optimistic world, this policy, we're probably talking about adding maybe 100, 150-ish affordable units per year, which is great, Um, but it really matters what happens to the market rates for the other 88,800 households that are lower income, that are living in market rate units. So to me, the, the best thing that we can do for those households is to work towards achieving housing abundance, and that requires making it as easy as possible to build lots of new infill multifamily housing from ADUs to missing middle um, to larger apartments. So I guess I'm, I, I'm just really concerned, I think, with the entire concept of taxing the exact thing that we want to encourage instead of trying to pursue a more broad-based tax um, for funding the affordable housing that we, we desperately need, and I think we all agree that we need. So um, I, I completely understand, I think, the pressure to do something with just how bad the housing crisis is, I totally recognize the, the challenges with, you know, more broad-based taxes having to go to voters. But I think I would much rather see us focus our attention on, on making the case to voters that we all need to pitch in and fund affordable housing. So I, I'd be, I guess I'd be interested in um, if staff is able to uh, analyze the potential for broad-based alternatives, um, like a parcel tax, like a real estate uh, progressive real estate transfer fee, um, which we have elsewhere in California to fund affordable housing. I think, you know, something like that, because it is broad-based, would actually generate significantly more uh, funding than, than um, the in-lieu fees that you'd get through the mixed-income housing ordinance. And I think, importantly, it's not going to, you know, unfairly burden uh, renters and new housing. So, um, y- you know, yes, we would have to be going to the voters for that. That's a harder political thing to do. I understand that. But I think, you know, we've talked on this commission a lot about how I think the political headwinds on affordable housing are the best they've been in a very long time in California. So I think it that's really the direction I'd like to see us go.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Caden. Commissioner Buckley.
12: Thank you,
2: Chair, um, and welcome back. Um, uh, thank you, Greta, for your presentation. Really appreciate it. Uh, very thorough, as always. Um, I have a few questions. Um, so... You mentioned density bonus as one of the potential incentives. Is that density bonus just in conformity with state law, or um, is that, are we contemplating maybe, I I think we've talked a little bit about potentially doing like a super density bonus. Is that part of your thinking there too, or are you kind of, in that part of the presentation, you're thinking particularly about just what's obligated under state law?
14: We're referencing state law in that, um, but could consider alternatives.
2: Um, And then for the incentives that you listed, are there any other avenues um, to those incentives outside of doing inclusionary zoning? So, meaning could someone get to, could a developer get to those incentives and through other pathways besides inclusionary zoning? Or would inclusionary zoning be the only pathway to those incentives?
14: Um, um, To clarify, we're proposing that incentives be offered only to the projects that are providing on-site affordable units through... Yeah I'm sorry does that answer your
2: question? No but I'll be clear so for those incentives um, for on-site I just wonder if developers can get to those incentives without doing on-site through some other mechanism.
14: No not not to my knowledge.
18: Good evening, uh, Commissioner Matt Hurdle, Long Range Planning Manager. We do have a suite of incentives currently that can be found in our housing development toolkit, including you know zero dollar impact fee, ministerial approval of infill housing, et cetera, um, working towards finding infrastructure funding. We just received $13 million for Green Means Go in, in infill areas that are building a lot of housing. So we certainly are, there are incentives that are in place now. This would be additional incentives and, and a policy decision to find additional funds, if we think that it's important to build affordable units on site as part of our uh, Firmly Further and Fair Housing uh, uh, goals, then we could look to identify additional funding sources or mechanisms uh, to help fund that difference in what it would cost for an in fee versus it to build on site.
2: Great. And my question is really trying to just get at sort of how how incentivizing those incentives are. And so if there are other ways to get those incentives or if they're reflective of things that are already in state law, I just wonder how much it will actually spur folks to make that choice. Because I do hear it as an elective for the proposal today, right?
14: Yeah, this would be something that doesn't currently exist and would only be um, available for on-site unit provision.
2: Um, My next question is around... um, you mentioned that the current fees collect about a million dollars a year. Is that right? On average. Do you have an, I, I'm sorry if I missed in the staff report, do you have a new estimate for um, what the changes in the fee structure might generate?
14: Uh, it's, it's difficult to calculate that just because um, we, don't, we don't know how much housing will be produced in the, in the next few years. We also don't know where the units um, will be produced. You know, We don't know when that 2500 market rate threshold would be um, triggering the next fee levels to phase in. So it's really difficult to tell. Um, the only thing I could say is that if the same level of housing production occurred and there were high-density projects taking place, um, they would be paying that $3.50 Three dollars 54 um under this proposal whereas they they don't pay that right now so that would be an increase um that doesn't uh exist right now
2: could you characterize sort of the impact of the million dollars a year that we get from the fee um you know what what does that do to our ability as a city to be able to satisfy our affordable housing need
14: Sure, um, the results from the fees, uh, from the historical analysis um, suggest that we provided um, I think approximately 122 to 132 affordable units per year that were uh, attributable to this ordinance. Um, that also includes the units that were produced under the mixed income housing strategies. So those weren't um, a result of the housing impact fee supporting projects but um, it, it's a result of what the current ordinance is, so we produced about four hundred. I think it's four hundred forty-seven or about there, um, units that were supported solely with these housing impact fees um, of the three that result from the three dollars fifty-four cents per square foot.
2: So three hundred fifty-four units out of the million-dollar collection of fees. Um, four
14: hundred about four fifty units from. The, the time that this ordinance has been in place from 2015. But that doesn't account for another 449 units that were produced through projects in the rail yards, uh, in North Lake, that are still under the same ordinance. They're just not being um, paid for in the same way. Does sure. that make sense?
2: I'm just trying to kind of get a sense of, like, what the current ordinance and that current fee structure gets us in terms of affordable housing. It sounds like you have more sort of a over time view of that, then sort of like an idea of how that shakes out maybe annually for us, which probably doesn't make sense uh, considering affordable housing takes so long to develop anyway. Um, so the land dedication um, piece, um, you've re- you suggest a requirement that it be within a half a mile of the causal development. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of the public policy rationale behind that?
14: Yeah, um, you know, we we haven't developed further, uh, you know, recommendations beyond that. Um, Just we haven't really uh, developed any guidelines around it, but um, it was just something that we we put there to, you know, hopefully in those areas where projects are occurring in higher opportunity areas, you know, the project will... Um, be dedicating land in that, you know, same area, but we could, you know, consider alternatives to that requirement um, and, and structure the land dedication differently. I would definitely welcome input on that.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I figured it was something around getting proximity to the resources that either come from new development or whether it's in a already existing, like, high-resource areas, thinking about affirmatively furthering fair housing. And I wonder if there are other things that we might consider than just proximity to make sure that um, any affordable housing that's developed on land-dedicated sites um, could make sure they're beneficiaries of whatever increase in resources or resources in the area. Um, so much in your presentation um, so I guess pivoting a bit to um, comments I'll just say that you know I I I'll, I'll think i sounds like I'm gonna be unique here but I, I think it's a good proposal I um, appreciate um, the direction the staff has taken here um, I fully understand that there are challenges for um, for inclusionary zoning and for on-site requirements. Um, but you know, what I really think uh, staff has done a good job in doing is letting the policy objectives drive the policy. Um, and, you know, just to read those out, that's increase affordable housing production is one of them. Um, it often dominates the conversation in ways that um, sometimes mute the other pieces, which is ensuring long-term affordability, affirmatively furthering fair housing, anti-displacement, mixed income development communities. All of those things are um, part and parcel of what an inclusionary zoning and on-site um, requirements are trying to achieve. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense the direction that you all have gone. I think, um, you know, we, you know, I mentioned this before when we talked about it. This is a very old discussion. Um, it seemed we could all be ghosts in this room having a discussion from, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, the, the it, it remains the same. But... Ultimately, this is a values choice to some degree, and we have to think about how we wanna grow as a community. We know how we consistently grow over time, which is generally exclusive communities and low-income folks not being the beneficiaries of new development um, and new housing growth. Um, so inclusionary gives us a way to address that. I'm interested in you know, optionality when it comes to things like in-lieu fees. Um, but I would like those incentives to do something to actually drive folks to, um, or to make sure that there's some, we're getting the same benefit out of both choices, because oftentimes in Luffy is a very easy choice for developers, right? So if we're gonna consider incentives, maybe we can look at other jurisdictions and determine, like, how do you actually make that a reasonable choice for developers? Um, And, you know, one of the speakers talked about You know, the fact that, you know, we these housing policies, you know, when we make values-based decisions in our housing policies and gets reflected there through fees and other other public policy, folks get pushed out to, um, you know, further out and further out. And I I think that's a real thing. Commonly, it's low-income people who get pushed further out and further out. And we have to think about how to make more inclusive communities. We have an AFH mandate in the state to do this. This isn't, this isn't an elective anymore. This isn't the just the right thing to do to affirmatively further fair housing. This is actually an obligation of the city to affirmatively further fair housing. So we can't just look at these, at these public policy goals at our, at our, um, at the objectives and just look at one of them and say, build more for build more housing. Because it's not the only objective, we have other requirements. We have other values we're trying to advance with our public policy, and so um, I'm encouraged by what the staff has done, and uh, I support your work. All, Chair, thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Buckley. Next, we have Vice Chair Wallace.
3: Thank you, Chair. Excellent work, staff. Um, I want to echo everyone's comments on that. Uh, I have some questions, and I have some comments. Um, the. Uh, I have lived in Midtown for 10 years and lived in East Sac for 11, so, or maybe it's 11 and 11 now, but um, the conversation for the last 20 years has been about driving infill development and creating uh, an in-lieu fee of $10 a square foot in the central city seems counterintuitive when we want more um, housing production in the core. and then sort of uh, so I'm curious about what the thinking is there, and then in in juxtaposition to the natomus in Lou fee, which was so much less.
14: yeah those are good questions and um, totally hear your concerns there. Um, so there's a, f- a few things that I'll mention. Um, one, you know start off by just saying that we we determined the full fee rates by looking at the feasibility study. So it's, it is fully driven by the findings of, um, you know, the, the costs that um, these projects bear and, and what they can essentially, you know, handle um, in what, what um, in, in, a, in a better market, essentially. Um, and the North Natomas um, fee is lower because the North Natomas area generally has Um, higher impact fees and permitting fees that they're paying um, at the building permit stage and um, you know in addition to um, You know the fact that these are based off of the feasibility analysis. I think it's um, Really the reason why we chose the phased in approach and really included that out the gate because um, You know as you could see in the graph that I showed from earlier um, we've produced over 2,500 units Um, Only four years in the past It was like early 2000s before since we produced that much housing previously And so it's not um, it's not a small threshold. I think it's a really healthy market Um, And so that $10 fee rate will not be in place at a time that housing production isn't in relatively full force Um, The last thing that I'll mention is that um, there is uh, an ability for project applicants to utilize SB 330 to freeze in um, impact fees at the time that they submit an application for development. Um, And so if they submit those applications today, they would not even be paying the $3.54 when that goes into effect, so if if it's um, approved. And so um, there's a lot of, I think, protections in place um, to make sure that this is not... Um, you know, stalling projects that are around the corner. I think um, we're we're pretty sensitive to that, but um, definitely do hear concerns, and um, we we also really want to make sure that housing production does continue to thrive throughout our city. Thank you. Um, I like
3: that. Um, I want to say I I, I do in, um, appreciate uh, the thought you put into the triggers, um, and I want to echo a comment from one of the letters we received that said as we do better, we should implement new triggers, right? And to maintain, so we always, we do this thing where we drop the fees because nothing was happening after the Great Recession. And um, as the economic conditions improve, we hesitate to change them. So um, I like the idea of um, setting a threshold. Um, And another question I have is, um, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Uh, So we have other jurisdictions that we're kind of competing with for um, housing producers to want to um, engage with us. And so have we considered the impacts this will have on um, driving production outside of the city of Sacramento, which will ultimately reduce our ability to build a tax base?
14: Yeah, certainly. Um, so we did look at the SACOG region um, as a whole, you know, the, the larger jurisdictions in our region and what their requirements are. And um, there are a lot of um, jurisdictions around us that do have um, on-site requirements and in lieu fees. Not all of them do. Um, for instance, Sacramento County does not. They have a similar program that we do in place. Right. Um, but, you know, we're, we're hopeful that this is, you know, not something that would drive investments away, given the phased-in approach. Um, but, yeah, there is a, a, um, a table in our draft report that summarizes all of the jurisdictional requirements in our region. If you want to take a look at that.
3: Yeah, specifically the county is who I'm most concerned about. <laughs> it seems like we have to do our work in tandem with them.
14: Although they do usually like to follow us. So yeah. We'll see.
3: <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, the, there's this conversation around affirmatively furthering fair housing. Um, and sort of kind of trying to redress the wrongs of um, redlining. And I wholeheartedly support that. And I uh, am a huge advocate of racial equity. And I think that exists at all levels. So I don't make nothing, but I make way too much as a single person to be able to benefit from any kind of affordability programs. And I also make not even close to enough money to be able to buy my own home. And all I see with um, this, especially in um, conjunction with what Commissioner Caden was saying about taxing new housing and making it harder that the the incidence of it falls disproportionately on new entrants into any market, um, is that this will actually uh, make it harder for middle class black and brown people to build wealth. So that's a just more of a comment, unless you have any response. <laughs> um, and so then I just wanted to like think about that, like how can we um, thoughtfully craft something that doesn't create a donut hole that is a mile wide. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that I really do. Well, I'll say two things. I love the idea of the um, leveraging the housing choice voucher program um, to give people that to do affirmatively furthering housing within market rate housing, right? Um, And then the last thing is that I I do think that um, in addition to this, we need to look at a a broader based tax. And so I'd love to know um, if both things have been pursued. Um, I love uh, the linkage fee, um, real estate transfer fee uh, approach. And so I'd love to see this in juxtaposition with some other um, opportunities that we might pursue. And I have no further questions.
1: Thank you.
11: Thank you, Vice Chair Wallace. We will next go to Commissioner Zhang. Thank you, Chair. So I recently sat in on a presentation by the chief economist of the California Association of Realtors. And um, one of the things that he brought up that I think is relevant to this conversation is California for the last 30 years has not really um, uh, created enough new construction to satisfy the demand. And that's one of the driving forces behind why prices in California continue to climb, um, even with the interest rates doubling last year. that we haven't seen the, the market has softened up a little bit, but we haven't seen a huge drop in pricing because there's still an issue with supply and demand—not enough supply for the demand. Um, so I think that um, increasing these fees to the point where developers feel that it's it's um, creating, um, it's it's making building less feasible. My concern is that it's going to reduce the number of homes um, being constructed and being available to, um, and, and gonna, it's going to um, even more so uh, create an. Uh, and unbalanced um, supply and demand issue, so that's 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 a concern of mine. Um, beyond that, um, I did want to also talk touch a little bit on the um, the um, affordable oh, the uh, sorry, the shared appreciation note. So I, I recall that earlier this year um, there was a program called the California Dream for All, where that was the program is. Uh, folks could apply if your income, um, if your income qualify, you can apply for, for that loan. And it was being offered through the, through the state. That money was gone in less than seven days. And it's only available as those funds are available. So I'm not sure how that would play into the timing of these developments. Um, and not only that, but um, if you click on the, on the uh, footnote, it takes you to the link. And I read the information about what that um, shared appreciation looks like. And it says that it's supposed—it's not supposed to affect the seller or the developer because they can sell at market rate. Um, so, how does that tie into um, the other options for um, providing homes at lower price for for these um, different um, options and, and options A and B? Um, so that's. I mean, I don't know if that's a question that you can answer right now, but there seems to be like a little bit of a disconnect there. Uh, we don't know when those programs are going to be available. So to say that that's something that can be utilized um, to meet these requirements as an option, it's, it's um, I just don't know how that's going to work. Um, and then, um, <laughs> let's see, yeah, I have a couple of other notes here. Um, Oh, okay, Um, so under item number one, the on-site affordability requirement, there's um, two bullet points where you say um, exempt projects, and one of those is projects with enforced development agreements adopted prior to the current ordinance. Is that the current ordinance, meaning the one that was adopted in 2015 that we have right now, or is that with this one that is...
14: Yes. Any any development agreements that are in place right now um, or before this ordinance is adopted will be
11: exempt. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just the way that it read, I wasn't clear. Um, okay. I think that's all my questions for now. Thank you.
14: Yeah. I could also respond to the shared appreciation note. Um, uh, so that the um, the home would still be sold to the the buyer at an. A Affordable rate I believe they would be David, can you explain that a little bit better because I'm really bad at explaining
7: sure. It. sure so the idea of the shared appreciation note it's, it's just a different structure for making the unit affordable um, and the, the benefit of it is so, so the basic idea is you, you sell it to the affordable buyer at an affordable price when they resell it they can resell it at market rate They're not restricted to sell it to another affordable buyer. But that difference between market and affordable that existed initially, that's recorded essentially as like a a loan. And and upon sale at market, that loan gets paid back to SHRA and can be recycled and assist another household. So it's, it's more flexible than a deed restriction. And... It allows the owner of that affordable unit to build equity over time they're not restricted to sell at an affordable price they have sort of a path to, to growth in their own equity uh, through the program that's greater than a traditional deed restriction which locks in how much appreciation they can have over time.
11: Thank you for that um, so, so that actually that, that brings up another question so SHRA would, would be the, the lender for that portion then is that what you're saying?
7: SHRA would not loan the fund in 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 essence the developer subsidy the developer is subsidizing that amount right in a traditional inclusionary where you have a regular deed restriction where that that unit remains affordable you know for the period of the deed restriction um, the developers basically absorbing that gap between market and affordable and the same would be true here Uh, so it's but 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 that difference between market and affordable price, which the developer absorbs, is recorded as a loan—a loan that SHRA doesn't fund—but upon the sale of the unit, would be paid back to SHRA. Does that does that make sense?
11: Um, I get what you're saying, but so 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 the developer would would then be, would the developer then act as the um, the note holder. For that shared appreciation note because I thought it was coming from some type of program whether it's state or SHRA
7: so it it, it can work different ways so it, it can it can come from a pot of money like if you if if that's if excuse me SHRA had a pot of money that they wanted to go out and assist households through this structure that qualify and then the that household can go out and purchase a a unit, you know, anywhere happens to be available. Then it's sort of like functioning like uh, kind of a home buyer assistance program Mm -hmm. is what it's doing. That's sort of one instance where you can use this structure. This would be borrowing that sort of idea, which I think was the focus of the report you referenced, um, but borrowing that idea, but applying it to the situation of an inclusionary program instead. Um, So under the inclusionary program, the developer has to sell the unit to the affordable buyer at the affordable price, and and the developer is in effect the one who subsidizes that. Um, but what we're doing is we're not the owner of that unit. We're not tying their hands to only sell that to another affordable buyer and to never have any appreciation in their or to have lock you know lower appreciation in their equity. We're trying to loosen that part of it up. That's that's one of the objectives, and just to provide, the, so when they do sell, they, they sell it at market rate, but let's, let's, say, let's say the initial market value was 600,000, and, but the affordable price was 300, just to make for easy math, right? So the developer has subsidized that 300,000 difference between market and affordable. Um, and let's say 20 years from now, the unit sells for a uh, million dollars, okay? So it's appreciated 400,000. So upon sale, they sell it for the million dollars, and the SHRA is repaid their, what the developer put into it, the 300 grand, they're repaid, the SHRA is repaid that 300 grand, plus their half of the appreciation, which was 200,000 in this example, so a total of 500,000. They get the 500,000, the homeowner gets their 500,000 and um, SHRA can use the money to assist somebody else, and the home buyer has that 200,000 growth in equity on their 300,000 initial purchase price.
11: Thank you, thank you for explaining that. And I'm sorry, I have one more question that I forgot earlier. So um, there was a couple of um, letters that were written here um, that reference um, Folsom's practice of um, charging the fee as a percentage of sales price. It's, it's, I was just wondering why that wasn't an option for, for um, Sacramento.
14: Um, Yeah, so the percent of sales price used in Folsom uh, is only uh, used for for sale products, which is the majority of the type of housing that is produced in Folsom. Um, And, you know, it's also uh, somewhat of a cumbersome program to administer, as um, you don't know always exactly what the the lowest sale price is going to be. And so, um, you know, we've understood that that is kind of a difficult program to administer. Um, so, you know, it's something that we just, you know, don't think, we don't think it addresses all the issues that we we need to solve here and that a huge base of our housing production is rental housing. So, um, those are kind of our reasons there. Thank you. Thank you. I yield.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Zhang. Next, we'll go on to Commissioner Young.
19: Thank you. Um, so, I've got a series of questions and comments as well. Um, so... I- it, they're just gonna be. I'm just gonna be firing away, kind of like a jazz musician. So I just didn't write it down. I was like, yeah, exactly. So let's just keep it light. So, um, especially when we're talking about housing, right? I'm passionate about it, but like, I could be a downer for some people, especially when we start throwing numbers that just are like everywhere, right? So, it kills the conversation. Um, so I guess my first question is for for the gentleman who uh, was in charge of Grace Development. I forgot the name of your. Um, so, so he had presented a hypothetical situation of like 100% deed restricted project. In this new ordinance, um, would they even have any sort of in fees? Because it's, it, to me, they would have, they would have already met, fulfilled that requirement of providing deed restricted housing.
14: Um, so they would need to provide at least the amount that we have outlined in our proposal um, affordable housing um, can be considered up to 120% AMI so um, that's considered workforce housing so I believe Some of the projects that um, John is working on are more around 80 to 120, and our proposal requires a lower threshold of 70. So as long as they provided that percent um, in the project, then they would not have to pay the in-lieu fees.
19: Okay. So um, could I ask the gentleman to come up here really quickly just to put him on the spot? Again, this is going to be... So... Love talking, no problem. Yeah, we're we're (laughs) just having discussion here. So, so let's say if if the the program was at eighty to one hundred and twenty, okay, let's let's bump it up a little bit to eighty to one hundred and twenty, and you would not have any incurred any fees or anything like that. um, Would would you still oppose the ordinance, given that that's the product type that you're you're going for?
17: Yes, part of your business. Yes, because what it does is it drives away capital. So. Uh, what happens is that capital is very fungible. Uh, and so when capital markets see Sacramento make these types of policies, it makes capital Sacramento less interesting to the people I need to raise capital from. Uh, so we're seeing that right now with California. About 30% of the capital markets are shut off because people don't believe in California anymore because they see stuff in San Francisco and L.A. that's happening. With, they just okay. think the whole state's mismanaged. So yeah. we need pro-housing
19: policies, and we need to embrace – Okay, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there and ask a, a follow-up question for you because, because you are already doing generating deed-restricted housing, my assumption is that you are able to access capital because you have lenders are, who are comfortable working with deed-restricted developers. So yeah. I'm, I'm kind of not So sure. if there's
17: 10 people that I want to pick up the phone and call, uh-huh. one person might say they're interested. And if Sacramento, as a market, let's say there's 10 people who, are, who provide equity or debt that are interested in Sacramento, yeah. right? Uh, Sacramento starts um, it, it, kind of going down the wrong path with more restrictive types of policies, more regulation. There's now going to be six people that I can call. So my, perception, my, my my probability of securing capital just went down by 40% because the market becomes that much less attractive relative to other states and other cities that don't have these onerous reg- regulations. Again, it's not a vacuum. As uh, Vice Chair Wallace uh, mentioned, we're not operating a vacuum here. So you would just
19: want to, because the, you're just saying this policy would um, decrease the competitiveness of the lending and the capital markets, thereby driving up costs for you from a financing yeah. perspective. And it's a
17: perception, perception issue, right? Capital doesn't want to go into a market where capital follows good governance, and this is not good governance. No offense, sorry.
19: Okay. It's not. All right, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, just wanted to ask. I've got more questions for you, Greta. Thank you. All right, so, um, so we're talking about in-lieu fees, and in my mind, um, as an underwriter, I look at the total development cost of a project. And so, um, in your models, uh, where do, you, how, what is the percentage of in lieu fees to TDC versus our impact fees as a percentage of TDC? I'm
14: gonna look
19: at David. To, to, TDC meaning total development yes. costs. So sorry, folks. <laughs> Gotta get rid of those acronyms. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> exactly.
7: Uh, so, um, with with the proposal, um, in lieu fees for rentals yes would range from approximately 09 percent to a high of two percent of total development costs. To the two percent being the central city. That was rough. And my calculation. Uh, mm-hmm. f- with four, so that's just the in lieu fees. Yep. Um, considering um where they are today yeah 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 it's about this is again with rentals ranging from eight to eight percent in which is the, the low point and that's the central city yeah. to twelve and a half percent and that's north natomas and those
19: are impact fees that we charge is that what you're saying it's, as a percentage of total
7: yeah, under- all under- all total first fees and permits costs yes. t- today yes. with no policy change so you know up to 2% increase over that right um, and that's that's rentals and I have for sale numbers if you want
19: okay so i just wanted to kind of put a more global perspective on this right what we are arguing about right now, right, because I'm, I'm hearing, you know, different arguments, right? And I, I, I think the word argument is a positive thing. I don't, I don't take that as a negative, okay. So, um, I, I see that we are, we are haggling over 1% of the TDC, one to 2% of the TDC about this in-lieu fee. Yet, at the same time, we also, as a city, influence 10 to 15% of TDC through the impact fees, or six to 12, or whatever, right? And I think the city is also saying we're offering to exchange some of that 6 to 12% pie for that 1% in fee, right, to offset the developer's total development costs. What that number is, I don't know, okay? I just think that more mental math needs to be done, right, so that the pain that the developer feels is less. But to me, I'm also hearing that the city is willing to have some skin in the game as well. Because we're saying, hey, we're willing to decrease some of our impact fees so that, you know, we can get some more in lieu fee and redistribute some of that fee that we were gonna take anyways, right, into affordable housing. So I think, in my mind, I, I, I know that it's very heated right now <laughs> when I hear from from the developers, but I'm also trying to take a step back and just trying to look at this from, just a larger perspective right now. Because I really wanted to spend this evening really haggling on the detail points of the program. But given a lot of impassioned pleas, right, and gloom and doom scenarios from developers, I, I felt like I, I needed to listen, you know, right, as a planning commissioner. And I felt that there were very good, compelling arguments. Um, but I also wanted to take some time to just do some truth-finding. Um, There was a mention of a Kaiser Marston um, study, and I think that was mentioned at the beginning of this presentation. Is is there someone from Kaiser Marston here? Oh, yeah. Oh, you are the Kaiser Marston girl, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you did the feasibility analysis. Okay, so I I did read, I did read some of that, thank you. I'm sorry, okay. Um, What was your conclusion in light of kind of these in-lieu fees? right, uh, this proposed in lieu fee structure, would this on as a whole um, wreck development from happening in the Sacramento market?
7: No, I don't think it would wreck development from happening. I mean, it, it as you alluded to with the question on the percent of development cost, it's it's, it's, this is not sort of not the tail that's wagging the dog. It's like, it's, it, we also, you know, we looked at it another way too, like how much would rents or prices have to change to absorb this? That's in the report too, if you want. And it, it's, you know, under 2% in all cases. Like if, if, if all, all of this proposal were to be absorbed by an increase in rents, that's how we offset it. It's, you know, no more than 2%, a lot of cases it's like half a percent. Um, so it's not, it's not like a major determinant of feasibility in the context of revenues and costs in, intentionally, right? That's, that, was an, that was an objective not to be a big constraint on projects and, and part of how that's accomplished is by having this in lieu fee be by, by right in, in most cases, right? Um, we saw how expensive, in the the bar charts in the presentation earlier, how expensive it can do, be to do on site. Now, if if you were to say, we we are going to mandate units you know, on site, then I have to change my answer to your question. But but, but that's that's not what's proposed.
19: Okay, so so, are you saying that a developer who chooses to restrict, like this gentleman here, self restrict his units, to let's say 80 to 100% AMI, right, would, would his projects be infeasible? If you mixed it with, let's say, 90% market rate in the central city, which is kind of what we're talking about, and 10% at 90% AMI or 100% AMI or 80% AMI, would that make a project infeasible?
7: you know i think i think correct me if i'm 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 wrong but i think we have a sort of a special circumstance with your project in that don't you have a property tax exemption kind of in the mix with that project is that yeah, yeah. Yes. so i think i think it's sort of like a unique unique situation that we we have not assumed a property tax exemption
19: exactly in our analysis you guys have not we, talked yeah, about yeah. that yeah that is correct and so i think I know of four or five developers who are trying to develop their market rate developers, but they are shooting for the 80% AMI target in the Sacramento area. So they actually feel like they think there is a market out there. And I think that their strategy is, because I think they can maybe achieve lower TDCs, total development costs, that... I think somehow they are able to make it work. I know of other developers throughout California who are trying to shoot for the middle-income housing market because they're see- they have a different priority. Maybe they're not necessarily trying to maximize their IRR, but they do feel like there is some profitability to be made, but it might not be, like, a ton, but I think it's they think it's doable enough that they're in the market, they're in the game. Would you say that's true based on your experience or?
7: I don't know if I have any more information than you okay. on
18: that. Okay, all right, that's fine. Commissioner, I'll add to that. I think part of this in terms of our preliminary recommendations and proposal, so you look at, if you were to provide affordable units on site at option B, 10% at 60% AMI, I think the key here to making that feasible is to layer things on, right? So if you do that, you're eligible for, if you need for 35 years, you're eligible for the state density bonus. So you can exceed uh, a number of you can get concessions and in, in incentives and waivers to exceed our standards in a lot of different cases. You do that, you can be eligible for a ministerial approval info housing project. You don't have to go through Segal, you don't have to go public hearings, you save a lot of costs there. You also, for those 10% units, you don't pay any city-controlled impact fees through our zero-dollar impact fee program. So there are a lot of incentives that you can build into this, and that's, that's from our perspective how you make this work. Yeah, Yep. So um,
19: what was the other question I was going to ask? Um, as far as the, um, the building associations and, and the – I'm not, I'm not going to put you guys on the spot, um, but I, I did read a lot of the stuff, and um, and I start. I actually ran some numbers in a pro forma about like, okay, if if my development costs increase by, I think one lady was saying ninety thousand per unit, right, and it would result in a ninety dollar increase in rent to in order to justify. Like that's that's kind of scary stuff, right? Um, I would I would assert that the developers and maybe the planning staff could get together more and, and sharpen their pencils a little bit harder because I was frankly surprised that no one mentioned the property tax exemption. Um, and, and I think that, um, I think the combination of property tax exemption, potential increase in density which means in my mind more NOI for the developer net operating income because more rents are being generated um, and lower impact fees collectively to me that's that's showing a lot of skin that the city is offering to put in there in the game and I think it's a creative solution I think it's all the solutions we can pull and I, I appreciate the staff because they're, they're just trying to like find what they can because right now I think, at the end of the day, um, with the affordable housing climate that we are in here in Sacramento, and I'm going to just specifically talk about Sacramento, we do not have a permanent housing trust fund. There, Politically, we've been trying for decades, and we have a mayor who is, like, I mean, he, from California, I mean, he helped start the MHSA program. He helped fund multiple affordable housing programs across the state. So I know he cares very passionately about, about affordable housing. But for whatever reason, since he's been the mayor, it just hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it's because he's not trying, right? I think, I think there are people who are passionate about it, but I just think collectively as a city, we have not, I think we're a little scared to pay a little bit more. And I think we are, because of that, we have no trust fund to fund affordable housing. And 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 so that is to say that this trust fund unto itself is not gonna solve the affordable housing uh, issue that we have here in Sacramento because that trust fund is going to need to be used on affordable projects in order to leverage tax credits and bonds in a system that really, you know, in a good day, in a good year, we'll see maybe five affordable housing projects funded a year in this region, okay? And and that's just not going to do it, right? Um, but it is the best system that we have available. And right now, Sacramento is not utilizing that system. And so, in light of the fact that, I, I, I like the idea, I, I support some form of way of like generating other funding programs it's just not going to happen so right now this is what we've got to play with and so I want to really I think we have to put more effort into like figuring out a way to fund this um, it's not going to solve it I think one million a year right I mean that's a drop in the bucket so we're maybe hoping to get two three million a year it's not going to solve it but it's something and so um, I just I just wanted to just reiterate that I, I just feel like we kind of have to be on an all-hands-on-deck kind of mentality, and I think I'm really calling on the development community to really help with figuring out how you can make your pencil, projects pencil, but at the same time, like, figure out, like, we just need to figure out a way to make this work, and I think it's very doable. And I think right now, I also wanted to just kind of address the whole issue of creating more housing as a way of supplying uh, as a way of addressing kind of increased rents and and whatnot because it's a supply and demand issue. Like we're not gonna build enough housing units in time to like get to equilibrium, right? That's probably that's like a 20 year, 30 year type of like timeline. And and so in 30 years we're gonna have like a ton of poor people, right? who are just gonna be feeling pain. And so, so, to me, the issue is urgency. And that's why, for me, I think that if we can get developers to be building and dedicating units on-site, because they, they're taking the time to build that unit, and if we can dedicate some of it to 80% AMI, um, that's, 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 less, that's more units that's not gonna take 20 years for folks. And so I think that there's an urgency factor here. And so while I appreciate all the other suggestions right now um, that are out there, it just takes too much time in my boat. And so um, I just want to say, good job. And I I really wholeheartedly um, just support the work that's going on. Um, But I would love for uh, the development community to be more engaged with sharpening their pencils and really kind of figuring out what, what can work. I mean, the developers, that I'm used to working with, you know, they can do this all day long. They, they they figure it out because they're in that world. There are private developers who are, this is not something they're comfortable with because they've never really seen it. And so I think what I'm hoping that they'll see is that we're in a different world now than 20 years ago. And so there's there's just gotta be a new way of doing business. And I think business can still be done, but I think just gonna have to relax their. Their perspective a little bit and be a little bit more open-minded and saying, I think I think I can still be profitable, and I think that's that's the message that we're saying. So, but you're just gonna have to sharpen your pencils a little bit more. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Young. Commissioner Lamas.
13: Thank you, Chair. <clears throat> and thank you, staff, for the report um, and for all the good work you guys have been doing. I think um, you know I echo a lot of the sentiments from my colleagues up here. Um, and I think you guys are trying to strike a balance, um, very delicate balance, between um, trying to address the affordable housing uh, crisis that we're in the middle of and trying to make sure that we're continuing to, to build. Um, I, I like the proposal. I, um, I would have liked to see the, the onsite requirement, but I know that you guys, you're trying to strike that balance and I appreciate the flexibility with these in lieu fees AND HAVING THEM um, BE INCREASED, BECAUSE I KNOW THAT THEY ARE, um, ONE OF THE THINGS THAT that HAPPENED, I BELIEVE, WHEN THE ORDINANCE CHANGED IN 2015 WAS TO TRY TO INCREASE um, THE, OR TO TRY TO PROVIDE OPPORTUNITIES FOR AFFORDABLE HOUSING TO STILL HAPPEN, TO STILL BE DEVELOPED, um, WHILE GIVING SOME MORE FLEXIBILITY FOR THE DEVELOPERS. BUT I KNOW WHEN THAT ORDINANCE PASSED, WE TALKED ABOUT DURING OUR LAST MEETING THAT THE AFFORDABLE HOUSING UNITS ACTUALLY DECREASED. Um, even though the restrictions were, were loosened and I know in, in some of the um, uh, findings of like other cities that have included incorporated inclusionary housing um, ordinances um, that necessarily wasn't the the focal point of what drove development one way or the other it was really the market the market kind of dictated that um, and it sounds like uh, and thank you Commissioner for um, kind of breaking down those numbers a little bit that was um, really insightful to see what percentage of a of an impact this is to to developments um, and whether or not um, the the market can capture that I know that the feasibility report did indicate that um, there are some the projects would be unable to develop the affordable housing component on their own but um, AS WE'VE TALKED ABOUT HERE, there are, THEY'RE SUBSIDIZED IN ONE WAY OR ANOTHER, RIGHT? THESE IMPACT FEES, THE PROPERTY TAX EXEMPTIONS. I KNOW THERE'S funding AT THE STATE LEVEL, FEDERAL LEVEL, um, at, AND WE'RE TRYING TO DEVELOP A SOURCE HERE AT THE CITY LEVEL. AND SO um, I THINK THAT'S IMPORTANT TO, to ACKNOWLEDGE THAT, um, YOU KNOW, WE ARE TRYING TO SUBSIDIZE THAT BECAUSE IT'S SOMETHING WE, we CARE ABOUT AS A CITY. Um, ONE OF THE THINGS THAT KIND OF STICKS WITH ME IN MY MIND um, is the current market the current levels um, uh, of the uh, the housing prices right now? Right, I think even a family at at the area median income for Sacramento, which is 113,900 for a family of four, um, still would have a very difficult time buying a house at the current market rate, right? Whether it's 450, 500,000, they would have a very difficult time buying a house. So it's already unaffordable, and like was mentioned earlier. MANY OF THE uh, HOUSEHOLDS LIVING IN MARKET RATE HOUSING ARE LOW INCOME. I THINK THERE WAS A MENTION TO LIKE 90%. Mm-hmm. AND SO WHAT WE'RE TRYING TO DO HERE IS TRYING TO CREATE A SAFETY NET FOR THOSE THAT ARE ALREADY EXTREMELY A uh, COST BURDEN IN THE CURRENT CONDITION AND CREATE HOUSING um, SO THAT THEY CAN LIVE COMFORTABLY, RIGHT, AND NOT PAY IN EXCESS OF 30% OF THEIR, their HOUSEHOLD INCOME TOWARDS towards HOUSING. So. Um, with that being said, I just wanted to elevate one of the comments that uh, was in the um, in the staff report from the Sacramento Housing Alliance, that said, uh, given the extent of unmet affordable housing needs and the gap between actual development costs of housing of affordable housing to lower income households, um, and the established RENA regional housing need, um, it is imperative that the city adopt. Policies and standards that will result in the actual production of affordable homes. This requires the ordinance to include a priority for on-site affordable units, or under limited circumstances, allowed development for affordable units within close proximity of the new market-rate units. And it may be appropriate under limited circumstances to offer the in-lieu alternative fee, but the fee must be at a, set at a level that does not incentivize only options, but rather creates opportunities for the development of actual affordable development. And so. Um, so I think that the the city's proposal um, does fulfill that right um, uh, that um, need to develop the to actually develop the affordable housing and to try to increase the in lieu fee, which I think um, was a good recommendation. Uh, and I actually, I did have a question um, in terms of the the triggers for the two thousand five hundred um, units being developed. Is that um, would that be a situation where only when we meet that target, those development targets, will the in lieu fees be increased? Um, and say the development numbers go down the next year, will it revert back to the lower numbers? Or just once that threshold is met, it'll switch?
14: That's how it's written currently, yeah. Okay. It, would, it would not go back. It would just stay where it is. So you, once you reach 2,500, you go to one step if five years later that's what happens again then you go to the final step but it would only happen it would only go up once you reach the threshold and then it would stay there
13: okay okay um, okay thanks that that's help, helps provide some clarity I uh, appreciate it and uh, I yield my time
1: thank you Commissioner Lamas we'll next go to Commissioner Messias Reed.
4: thank you I have more of a uh, question for staff around operations I so we had our 2000 ordinance right we had an update with HIF in 2015. Um, and now here we are in 2023 Um, i'm wondering if it would be helpful it sounds like on average we're, we're 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 attacking this and looking at this every like 15 years um have we discussed internally as a city and as a department on like how do we um, you know, feasibility, feasibility analysis. Like, are we going to be conducting them every so often to see, okay, what policies are, you know, having an impact or not? Um, is this clearly, I think this, if I'm not mistaken, was triggered um, by council, um, but what is the impetus for us to, like, take a step back, review, and and see where we're at? Yeah, so the
14: 2015 ordinance um, was the impetus for that was the 2013 to 2021 housing element. So the analysis for that started in 2013, um, and it was adopted in 2015. And it it really does take a long time for these conversations to happen, and I think that's why, um, you know, we don't commit to looking at it every three or four years because it takes, like, three or four years sometimes to come to agreements on something like this. And so I think that's also why we're trying hard to make this flexible and make it something that will last, um, at least until the next housing element when we decide to look at it again. Um, yeah, that would be our response.
4: Um, and also, I just you know want to talk a little bit about the feasibility analysis, because I think in some of the comments, it's been called out that this is unverified information. And there was a lot of pushback, I think, from some of the public comments on, like, the validity uh, terms, validity being used on this analysis. And I just, you know, I don't know if you have any feedback or comment on that because, um, you know, I think this information is, is data that's relevant to when we're making these decisions. And, um, you know, it, it's saying you're using unverified sources, and, and, you know, that's not my understanding. So I just wanted you to address that.
14: Yeah, that was, I'll pass it to you, David, but I just, you know, want to confirm that that is something that when we set out with this project, we knew was one of the most important things um, to, you know, aid us in our decision-making, but also we knew that that was important to the community and stakeholders as well. And so we really chose an expert to, to help us with this because we are not the experts. And um, Kaiser Marston has an extensive history and expertise with this. So, um, and I know that David did his due diligence to the extent that he could that, um, you know, developers would speak with him about this to provide information, and I know that some of them did. Um, And so, David, I'll pass it to you to add, but I just, I do think that we have an an expert helping us out here. And in no way, David, is this an attack on you.
4: I just, you know, these are public comments that I think uh, I think it's important to address
7: uh, well thank you for the opportunity and so there's sort of like two two flavors I think of of comments on on feasibility analysis validity right one one set of comments is focused on the fact that we looked into the past and and presented this this prior market analysis and and sort of the, the comments around that were that's not valid because you know the past, just in sort of brief you know doesn't mean that the future' is going to look like that, and we would- i mean in effect agree with with that part of the comment but we, but we think that that look is still valuable because um what it does is show you what a requirement like this could do to a feasible project right like if you if you just take where we are now in a down market and say you know things are feasible infeasible and you know and the conversation with that, we haven't told you how, how a potential requirement would affect a project that's actually gonna get built in the future when the conditions support it. Now, we recognize we don't know what those future conditions are gonna be, but we wanted to pre- present something that sort of showed that in, in the best way that's possible today, which is looking at the market that supported the development, and you can see around town, you know, thousands of units have been built, and how might this type of requirement have affected that? And as sort of one way to provide some perspective, both on, you know, what I just mentioned, as well as the fact that, you know, conditions, feasibility conditions are fluid, and you know, there's some stark changes that have happened and will happen again. So that's sort of in some some aspects of those comments, I agree with. Where we we don't say that, and, and we wouldn't say that. We we know the future and that the future is going to be a repeat of the past, um, but we still think that's sort of a valuable look in in some respects, which is why we provided it. Um, the, the other the other sort of set of comments is just sort of I think suspicion about data data sources on costs. I think, and where you know where did we get it? Um, and it, it, the the honest answer is it comes from from our experience working on these projects. It comes from conversations with developers around town. Some have shared performance with us. Some have shared uh, cost information for their projects, both historically and their more recent ones. Um, I, I have, you know, developers outside of town who, who I have, you know, longstanding rapport with that I also reached out to. Oh, you know, what are you, you know, what are your costs for this project that you've? That I know you have active, you know, in this community, and and you know, through that relationship, they'll share that with me. Um, there's also when the city does a community facilities district bond, developers will report their cost information for their project and publish it in official statements for those bonds, and we access that information too. You've had a couple of recent uh, CFD bonds that have been issued in the past couple of years where that kind of cost information got. Published and so, between you know asking 15 different people about this information, um, yeah, there's you know we're asking people, but you know there and we also are across the table from developers and and you know doing due diligence on, on for those projects. I also have a former colleague who's working on a major project in Sacramento. I had reached out to him, um, so w- it comes from a variety of places um, and. Through that, um, through that, we can vet the information and, and be confident in, in, in what we're giving you. And your assumptions. Yes. Yeah.
4: Thank you for that. I yield my time. Thank you, Commissioner
1: Macias-Reed. Next, we'll go to Commissioner Chase.
5: Thank you, Chair. Um, Greta, Matt, Greg, great job, as usual. you doing a superb job. Um, not an easy, uh, issue that you've brought up here. Uh, I think we've been hearing that. Um, I have philosophically been a longtime proponent of inclusionary housing. Um, when I looked through the realities of it today, tonight, the people who would be doing it, I, I, I hesitate. I've got some hesitancy, and I think we need to find a solution and keep moving forward. Um, you know, As an architect, I've worked with many developers over the years, and a lot of them will they'll, they'll try to bluff you and say, if I don't get this approved, the project's going away. I've heard that many, many times in this case though, I think everyone that spoke in this room are the people who are proposed who are going to build the things that we're looking for the housing and I think they've got to be i think as commissioner Young said they've got to be at the table um to help us find a solution uh rather than us kind of trying to spoon feed them and you know put it out there it's got to be a win win I think for all of us for the city, for the residents for the the builders um and and you know I don't think we're there yet, but I, I think we're heading in the right direction here. Um, you know, part of the issues, is I think, the complexities of the financing between uh, market rate and affordable housing, uh, you know, uh, are difficult to blend in there. When you start talking about, you know, going to TCAC for tax credits, you know, well, that doesn't factor into uh, market rate housing, but it does. So how do you, how do you handle that mix? And I think, again, it adds to the complexity there. Or, um, you know, a builder, is a builder just going to say, "The heck with it, it's too complex, I'll go to Folsom, or, you know, whatever. We don't know. We don't want that to happen. Um, I think, that, to me, what we need to do is, rather than the hammer, I think we need to look at incentives. Um, we may get to inclusionary housing at some point, but I think trying to turn it around immediately is probably not going to work well or happen. Uh, and I think we've heard that from certainly all of the uh, uh, you know, people who submitted uh, you know, their comments in writing uh, t- to us uh, uh, tonight. I-, I think back when I was building official for the city quite a few years back, and Ray Carriage was the city manager, um, there was an effort to try to really just change the whole climate about building and development. And Ray, we had forums where the uh, developers were invited off-site a room somewhere, you know. Get everybody set up tables, give them coffee, um, and get everybody in there and talk about these issues. You know, to try to find a solution together. The interesting thing was that certainly in the building department is that no one from the building department that was going to be working on the counter could be there. You know, it couldn't be at that level because the builders wouldn't. You know, developers wouldn't feel comfortable <laughs> talking about the person who gave them. You know, too many corrections. Uh, you know, a month ago on a project. So. But if you can elevate it up, I, I would give some consideration to that to try to get that that forum going together because th- these are the folks, the ones that we heard from tonight, who are, are going to make it happen, and we don't want to drive them away. We've got to keep them here, uh, and they're not the enemy. Uh, they're the ones who can help us reach the goal. But we've got to we've got to have them involved. I think to try to reach it together. So I would I would really try to uh, you know do something like that. Commissioner Young mentioned the fact that we don't have an affordable housing trust fund. Uh, I was wondering, you know, would something like a bond issue, you know, uh, measure, you know, what's the likelihood of passing that? Don't know, but that's, a you know, a, a source of, of financing that, that we might uh, consider. Um, my concern is that we just don't shoot ourselves in the foot here and think we've got a great concept. Let's move forward with it and we lose everybody and we don't get the gold of the housing that we're doing. Right now we are doing well, you know from a housing standpoint. Could we do better? Sure, absolutely. And how do we do that? Uh, maybe we don't flip the switch completely. We just kind of you know it's a real stat. you know we We kind of slide it slowly or something. and look at different increments along there. Um, you know so i I think i I really respect uh, and also I was thinking back to this about you know uh, inclusionary units that uh, projects that worked well. I know I lived in Metro Square um, you know, many, many years ago, uh, and that was a mix. Uh, there were a few percentage of affordable units in there. I think the same thing with Capital Homes, Capital Park Homes that uh, Soterios did down, uh, again, not too long after that, had a certain percentage of affordable units in them. Now, they were detached, which certainly makes it a lot easier than for sale units in an attached condominium. A lot of builders and developers and architects don't want to get involved in condominiums anymore just from a liability standpoint. But I think the key to me as we go forward, I would say we need to look at incentives that will, you know, be the positive, be the carrot rather than the stick uh, to keep everybody, you know, moving forward and, and working with us. And, and again, I, I, I do propose that we try to get all of those people who have been speaking tonight and submitted letters together, you know, all together. And it don't have to be, you know, separate. They can all speak out together with, with you know, a certain number of people from the uh, from the city to try to reach a goal I, I think that we heard from them they're all everyone wants to achieve affordable housing uh, but if we don't do things right along the way not only won't we get the housing that Commissioner um, uh, you know young mentioned but we won't we won't um, well, we just won't. We won't accomplish anything. I think that we're trying to get. We'll go backwards in terms of the number of housing units that we're trying to uh, promote. So, anyway, just some random thoughts. But I, I think again, I, I congratulate the staff and thank you for the hard work that you've put into this. Um, let's keep moving with it. I think and try to try to find something that can get everybody working together. So, thank you. I yield.
1: Thank you so much, Commissioner Chase. Commissioner Young. Yep.
19: Um, Follow up question on the. Metrics that would inform kind of the adjustment of the fees, and I think that one of the concepts was that you know and and I like this in in concept, which is giving giving planning staff some information to give them a sense of where the market is and if if, if we 're in a down market, the fees would go down, and if it 's a strong market, you know the fees fees would increase i i 'm just sort of curious like to me, sometimes market data has a lag. And so I think that, you know, we might be setting fees kind of off of, we might be off in terms of market timing. And so I was sort of curious kind of what your thoughts were as far as the data and, and kind of how current and sensitive it is to actual market timing because i think my concern is now i'm just speaking on behalf of the developers like i i think being able to have some sense of cost um certainty like if i'm going to build build something like i kind of want to know like what i'm going to get charged ahead of time because these the planning kind of takes a while and so so i'm just wondering if maybe the staff can kind of speak to that
14: yeah um so when uh <clears throat> Sorry, I'm blanking on my thoughts. So you're asking about um, the metrics. So um, the 2500 number um, is based on housing production and I think one of the things that we, you know, are, are acutely aware of is this, this um, you know, certainty that the developers like to have in their um, projects as they're moving forward. And so, um, you know, as we're looking at, you know the market and permits I think you know when we look at at the at the housing production trends over time I think you can slightly make some production predictions about where the market is going and whether we might hit that target or not Um, and we have that six month um, kind of time period between you know January and July 1st that Um, developers would have to know when the fee is kicking in. So that's one small buffer. But again, I would also bring up the SB330 application as one tool that can be used um, to ensure certainty in projects. Um, You know, we're certainly open to other, you know, indicators to be used um, in terms of, you know, trying to trigger market health. But um, we just thought that, like, if the units are actually being produced, market rate units are being produced, then that, that must be an indicator of a healthy market.
18: Yeah, I would just add to that. There's, there's an approach with getting your planning approvals entitlements versus your building permits, right? And so we know you know, right now, in, in particular, where the market's a, it's a bit weak, interest rates are a bit high, uh, developers moving pretty quickly in getting planning approvals entitlements so that when the market does improve, that's when they move forward with the building permits. Fees are assessed at, when you submit a complete building permit application. So there are going to be some fluctuations both in fees and interest rates between the time you get your planning entitlements and your building permit. So typically, developers are, are watching that, they get their approvals, uh, and as soon as the market conditions align and they're able to get the capital, that's when they move. Um, so as Greta talked about, you can also submit a, you know, a preliminary application under SB 330 prior to getting your planning approvals that would lock in things for a certain time. So there's that, uh, that tool as well that will help aid that
19: certainty process. So, so would you foresee kind of updated fee schedules on an annual basis, semi-annual, um, just so that you know, you'd know get some sort of predictability? Like what, what are you foreseeing as far as the fee schedule and how often that would come out? Well, t-
18: yeah, typically there is an annual fee, fee schedule. Some of our fees have uh, construction cost index escalators uh, embedded, so there are some that automatically escalate depending on the fee and how it's written in the ordinance. Others are stagnant, um, but yeah, we, we review fees or have fees do increase, some fees increase annually.
19: Okay, thank you. I would just put, put in my two cents as far as whatever we can do to make the cost as certain as possible and, and less variable. Um, so I think that that's, you know, something to, to consider. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Young. Next we have Commissioner Boyd.
20: There we go. I saw one light, but not the other. But anyway, thank you, Chair. Uh, a couple, uh, few, excuse me, several things. The I wasn't going to use this as a close, but uh, I'll, I'll use it as an introduction. Basically, what it, it seems to come, what it seems to me, that it comes uh, down to simply is: Are is the city looking to continue to cater to developers, or to build housing? For those folks at the 30% AMI, in a nutshell, my opinion. Uh, with that said, the discussion of developers going elsewhere to build, if that is what I do, I'm looking for the, the greatest uh, ROI period on, on my development. So, the discussion what has taken place um, this evening for the for the most part if not all is the comments being made that the trickle down theory of the cost will be absorbed going down ending with the purchaser and or renter it hasn't been discussed as well stand steadfast and let the developer take the hit reducing their profit margin so that developer does have the option to yeah well i'm going elsewhere and it's like anything else if elsewhere stands fast, stand fest, uh, and like no this is just how it is. you take the hit, and it's not passed down to those who can't afford this. I'm just offering uh, my perspective and opinion and in, in, in going not just so much as my opinion but as I understand it, the real estate market has a uh, year year after year four um, percent profit. Regardless of what the market is, simply because of am- amortization, you have your mortgage of 30 years that's due every year. And unless you are, you know, you've become unemployed, just no income, you lose your house, foreclosure, whatever, the bank, uh, not the bank, but the holder, uh, lender sells a the property, they still get their money. The monies continue. Housing doesn't take a hit, real estate doesn't take a hit, there's continued profit. Let's just make sure everybody understands that. That's just the nature of the beast. Uh, So to that, helping build housing that's attainable for folks in the 30 to 40% AMI is the way it should be um, stated, instead of using affordability, because affordability is 80% AMI, which is, you know, uh, majority of the folks, the wor- excuse me, more than half the workforce here in the city of Sacramento, excuse me, county of Sacramento wide, are at that 30% or lower AMI, just, that's just the real numbers. So the 80% AMI is the missing middle, more or less, um, uh, workforce housing, however, which way you want to word it. But those are folks still making up uh, somewhere in the $60,000, $61,000 uh, annual income those folks aren't the great majority of the great percentage of individuals who need housing. It's the folks at the 30% AMI that need the housing. So with that, just setting up my next comments, offering an incentive to a developer that will include 10% low income housing to me is a joke you're doing what's required by law or what is uh, mandated to include 10% low income build. If you're going to give someone an incentive, okay, 20 to 25% of your development, okay, yeah, okay, I'll give you an incentive because now you're making a difference. Doing what's required of you and we're going to give you an incentive for doing so, that's ridiculous as ridiculous as has been brought up by several offering an option to pay a couple of bucks rather than build housing for low-income folks so as a developer you know what I'll just give you a couple of trick its uh, so I don't have to see your kind your kind being the poor if in lieu of fees is an option a developer's a developer would take make them hurt, make it hurt so you know what's better let me just build a low income housing. That's my opinion. I know that's a fight that I don't think I'll ever see, but the reality if it's an option, it make it make it hurt. It always comes back down to the bottom line it's just you know it's money, this period. How much is a developer willing to put into something to what their, where their profit margin is going to range? And I'm used to making this. Now you're asking me to make this. Yeah, I'm going down the street. But again, it comes down to if everybody stays in the same mindset of we're in this together. As, again, my thoughts, uh, pipe dream, I should say, because it is as what it is. But for the city of Sacramento to increase, as uh, Commissioner Young had pointed out, it boils down to about what a 1% uh, gain from what it is now by offering offsets, by entitle by, by offering to give, um, excuse me, by offering entitlements to those developers, to which my opinion is no. The continued waiving of developer fees, continue waiving of the entitlement fees is the down, is again this trickle down what affects the majority of the citizenry here in Sacramento, i.e. those programs that used to be funded by those developer fees are no longer happening. Last summer, well not this, two summers ago, where the after school uh, youth programs were washed away because the monies weren't there. Monies weren't there because of large projects, developer fees were not, were not collected. Entitlements were given instead of having those developers pay their fair share. As a developer, I have to have great capital to build whatever it is I'm going to build. That's the nature of the game. I can't come in and be broke and expect to build something and hope it just comes into fruition and that I'm able to sell it later for my, my, uh, my huge profit. So it starts at the top. Again, it's offering my, my thoughts. Giving away so much to appease a developer who's standing on their pile of capital not every developer is the same, don't get me wrong, 750 build versus a 10-unit build, different uh, levels of capital. But if you're in the game 2 build, you understand what it is you're doing. You understand what it is the return that you're trying to achieve. Stop giving away the house. The city is the house. Force the players to contend with the rules of the house versus just giving it away. The streamlining streamlining of the permitting process, i.e., knocking back um, the enforcement of some of the CEQA um, um, laws that are out there per se, excuse me, per se, in order to quickly permit a developer to get in and get out, grand, i.e. grandfathering in a, a development if it's a standing structure and they're just uh, redeveloping it, is going by the old uh, EMI, EMI um, um, uh, EIR versus a current, and that could be 20 years ago, 30 years ago, which aren't, uh, there's no way to, to put it in a today's perspective because of how time has changed. That actually just is absurd, but it, that's in favor of the developer, the folks with the capital. The, the long and short of it, more long than short, is I'm 100% fully into uh, increasing any amounts that go to developer that won't trickle down, change that, and finding a mechanism that it won't trickle down to the end user or purchaser, the renter or buyer. If somebody has that magic pill, please let me know, but again, offering uh, my opinion. Uh, I'm going to jump around on a couple things here. Uh, Commissioner Caden had 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 brought up that the proposal doesn't uh, would not affect any current homeowners, um, prior homeowners. um, Once this, if it goes into effect, to that I simply state, current homeowners um, have either paid and or are paying a Melrose bond of 30 years for that home that they purchased, they are paying in and or have paid in for it. If, if you're done, you've paid 30 years' worth of additional monies for the infrastructure, um, fire, police, so forth, so on. So anything, any new development, that's new development money. Someone who's already paid that 30 years' worth should not have to. Also be included into anything new, my opinion. The um, Commissioner Buckley, um, I'm not speaking for him, but I, I believe the gist that you were getting at with how much money was collected from, I believe, last year's, excuse me, um, uh, fees of a million dollars. What kind of dent did that really do in regards to building low income housing? Would I be on track on? Putting it that way, and so with that, any additional monies coming in would help that amount of uh, low-income housing to be built. Um, uh, More money coming in, more low income. Not affordable, which is the key or catchphrase of really meaning middle income, 80%, but low income. Excuse me, should have taken the candy out of my mouth. Uh, low income housing uh, of 30% AMI being built. Again, I said I'm just gonna jump uh, just back and forth, uh, jump around, just a couple of more things here. The uh, actually, Commissioner Lamas um, had taken out one of the points I was going to read from Sacramento Housing Alliance, their number three in regards to what I was just speaking on offering that in lieu of of yeah we won't build it we'll just pay a couple of bucks but thank you for bringing that up uh, commissioner, commissioner lamas and uh, two questions that might help me understand a, um, a lot of this in the city of sacramento how much acreage is actually left change that that is available to build a 750 unit or greater development here in, in the city of Sacramento. Do you guys have that information on hand?
14: We haven't done that analysis yet, um, but there's always you know pop, um, properties that could be assembled or um, you know annexations that can occur or you know just future projects can pop up, and that was a, a threshold amount that we. Um, you know, set to be that, that size of that acreage, to be um, large enough to kind of um, be able to, um, you know, host that much, that many units and and have that much land for um, a low-income housing tax credit or, or um, project.
20: Oh, I'm, thank you for that, Greta, and I'm with you on that, but it's, as I've driven around Sacramento, I'm trying to, I can't, uh, maybe I don't drive far enough, But I don't see an area that would accommodate such a build of 750 units or greater uh, um, in abundance, let me put it that way. So using that number of 750, you just explained it, but there there isn't that many places that that could happen in the city of Sacramento. Uh, Going straight up, yes. Um, and then we go into a whole different thing of zoning of well, how many stories is that thing going to go up uh, for in that perspective so i 'm I'm using a mindset, and let me just reference in Sacramento, we are more spread out build than we are uh, vertical build so just so i 'm using that uh, mindset, and I believe lastly well not lastly, but I think just two more the um, exempt from the, the proposal would be 10 unit or fewer builds mm-hmm. by chance. Would you guys have information on hand about what is the percentage of 10 unit uh, developments that are current uh, in, not being built, but are current uh, in the city of Sacramento?
14: How many exist?
20: How many exist? Thank
14: you. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, we could potentially research <coughs> that, um, but I'm not, I don't know how, easy that would be, Um, but it's something that could be researched. I think more importantly is, um, you know, what type of development looks like moving forward. Um, But, um, you know, we will know that once we do our annual progress report for 2023, um, which we'll release next spring, kind of give us a picture of, you know, over the more recent years, what that um, percentage has looked like.
21: I appreciate
20: that. That's why I was just asking, if you guys already had that number, that's why you chose um, 10 units or, or fewer uh, to be exempt if there's such, uh, as if um, if you guys already knew that they only make up 1% or 2%, something that's so, I won't say insignificant, but such a minute number that is, it wouldn't, you know, help the cause. But as you stated, you guys aren't certain or you don't have the information as of now um,
14: I think it's more of a, a feasibility um, question and, and wanting to make sure that we're still, um, you know, um, we're looking at our missing middle, you know, study right now. And as we start to allow um, potentially more uh, units built in and throughout our neighborhoods, um, you know, if a project is smaller, we, you know, I think we want to make sure that we're. Um, not um, making those projects infeasible. I think the smaller the project is, a little bit more difficult it could be to sustain requirements like this. So that was um, that was our thinking there.
20: I appreciate that and I'm glad that you brought it up and I'll expound on that a little bit if you don't mind. And to that, so what that is offering is for those individuals that, to come into current R1 housing, um, single family housing neighborhoods and to, to build 10 unit or fewer housing projects and not having to pay into the proposal to which the and that's why I brought it up everybody should be included my opinion so it doesn't drive even more so those who would build 10 units or smaller where there's r one um, um, neighborhoods and or elsewhere but where the those 10 unit builds would take place is the cheapest um, area uh, property costs, which would be the low income neighborhoods to which the overdensification of those 10 units or fewer developments would take place and which by projections, which I'm sure you guys have done and um, actually I know it has already been done, concur to what I've just stated so that is why I asked the question in regards to exempting 10 unit builds or fewer my opinion include everyone so if you're going to build them hey pay, pay into the pot just like everybody else and I do believe my last thing here is the um, it was brought up, I forgot who brought it up. I believe it was one of our commissioners. Um, You may have touched on it as well, uh, Greta, in regards to supply and demand. Supply and demand does not work in housing. Attainability, change that, affordability of purchasing a house is what drives housing If in your market. If there's a 1,000 houses sitting vacant, um, all selling for $2 million. But there's only 10 people in your market that can afford to buy those housing. You have plenty of housing, but they're not selling. It's It's economics. It's not supply and demand. You have to have the money to purchase the housing. And if your market doesn't have that income to purchase housing, you do not need to keep creating more housing. With that said, that model has been skewed by um, speculators, i.e. hedge funds and so forth, who do purchase large um, um, amounts of housing units and take some of those housing units off market not to be repurchased, or to be sold and then purchased from someone else and/or rented, simply to keep driving that cost up as a simulated supply and demand. The housing is there, but it's off market. So it increases Sacramento is a case in point. The housing is here, but a lot of the housing here in Sacramento are sitting empty. And so fewer available housing units to go into. You've got folks trying to get in somewhere that they can't afford because the the cost is so great. Uh, Senator um, Wahab had made a comment, um, I want to say July-ish, that in the Sacramento region, there's over 30,000 ghost houses. 30,000 ghost housing units is just what I just stated. Houses sitting empty, not being rented and or being resold. So I just want to let folks understand economics is what drives building houses. Again, if, you, if there aren't individuals to purchase the housing, housing isn't going to be built. And by building a grand number of housing units, if no one can afford them, how does that make sense? It wouldn't. You build to accommodate those who have the monies to purchase. That's pretty simple. And I think that is. Um... Oh, uh, last thing here. No, you know uh, that was it but but thank you Greta thank you uh, folks thank you for accommodating
1: Thank you Commissioner Boyd um commissioners before we take a short break um i'll just close out the discussion for today i really appreciate staff greta thank you so much for all of the work that you guys have done and especially the commissioners for such a robust discussion and hearing everyone's diverse thoughts on this um i appreciate staff for their thoughtful approach on the proposal um and agree that mixed income housing and concept is wonderful i, I really love my neighborhood in colonial village um we have such a diversity of 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 um, residents in just my block alone. There are young families. There are families whose adult children have moved back in with them because they were priced out of rentals. There are elderly folks who's a halfway home. There's um, racial diversity, uh, multilingual diversity. There are folks with um, uh, landscape businesses and folks who own small businesses and professionals. So mixed income housing, uh, uh, it works um, in, in certain neighborhoods. And, and I just want to say that Having said that, um, as a concept, um, and I, again, appreciate all of the work that staff has put into this, um, I do share a lot of the same concerns that was raised, um, that was raised here tonight um, by the development community, by the commissioners um, on on here. I did have a lot of questions around the face in approach, some of which were raised, including, um, you know why 2025 makes sense and what does that mean for folks who are in the pipeline um it kind of feels like we're moving the goalposts there there was a question on um you know would there be off ramps it sounds like no i'm kind of wondering you know what does that mean as well as you know are we looking retrospectively or pro- prospectively so it just feels like we're moving the goalposts a little bit there um i would like some more discussion on that going forward when this uh, as this continues to move um and i do believe that staff has been very well-intentioned. That is very clear. I also believe that the development community um, who's here and who have provided comments are, are also really care about um, inclusionary housing um, and that are here representing comments um, and that they are also well-intentioned. Um, but again, I do hesitate. I really want to urge, if this is the last thing I'm going to say for tonight, I really want to urge the infill development community to come to the table with solutions and ideas and participate at a greater level um, with staff here tonight and I really wanna push staff as well to, to increase your outreach to the, the development community and to the folks who have um, firsthand uh, experience and who are going to be the ones um, living uh, within this, this new framework going forward. Um, so with that, this is review and comment. I'm looking forward to how this moves uh, forward and comes back to us. Um, with that, let's take a short break and come back at 8.45, thank you.
14: Thank you so much.
1: All right, 8.30. Item number four, this is 2024 Planning and Zoning Work Program. We have a presentation by Planning Director Greg Sunland. Whenever you're ready.
21: Thank you. Good evening, Chair Hernandez, members of the Commission. Tonight, I'm coming back to the Commission with the latest draft 2024 Planning and Zoning Work Program. Um, So this is a process where the Commission can provide input. To identify and prioritize focus areas and action items for the annual planning and zoning work program which is approved by council each year in January Um, so September 28th I provided an overview of the work program got a lot of great comments and questions from the Commission Um, tonight we're recommending that the Commission forward the planning and zoning work program to the City Council for approval um, I plan on taking the work program to Law and Legislation Committee on December 5th, um, highlighting comments by the Planning and Design Commission, and then um, on to the City Council in January for adoption. Um, attachment 5 of the staff report is a summary of the Commission comments and questions. Commission feedback in September focused on accessory dwelling units, updates to cannabis policy community engagement regarding affordable housing and infill development, form-based zoning and missing middle housing, infrastructure financing, and the Age-Friendly Action Plan. The 2024 Planning and Zoning Work Program has not been modified since the September meeting because commission input did not require any changes. Um, I do have a few follow-up items to clarify. Uh, We do intend on having the code changes that permit missing middle housing be completed by the end of 2024 Uh, we'll be looking at a phased approach to the um, uh, updates to our planning and development code over the next three years Uh, also chair Hernandez you had asked um, what the city is doing to address the high vacancy rates of offices and commercial space downtown I said it follow-up so we would continue to facilitate housing development downtown we have a lot of supportive policies, also codes in our, co- in, our, in our planning development code that permit a change of use from office to housing by right, um, commercial to housing and the like. Um, looking at financing and grants uh, to help with the conversion of commercial properties to residential uses, notably uh, the state historic rehabilitation tax credits, they help, can help finance affordable housing in historic buildings. Um, also, I saw just recently uh, new federal grants announced on October 27th. This has become a national issue, so the federal government's getting involved, looking to incentivize this. Um, working with both the city's Office of Arts and Culture and Office of Nighttime Economy to improve the regulatory setting for music and entertainment. And then also, we're currently drafting a new general plan policy um, promoting the facilitation. Um, development of and temporary activation of vacant property and so that language specific language will pre- be presented to you on the uh, 29th in the special meeting um, so again we're recommending the Commission for the 2024 planning and zoning work program to council for approval and I'm happy to address any additional comments or questions you may have
1: thank you director Sandlin excuse me I misspoke earlier. My dyslexia is kicking in at this late of the hour. Um, We'll move on to public comments. Uh, Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have no speakers for this item.
1: Thank you. We'll close the public comment period and bring the discussion back to commissioners. Commissioners, do you have questions, comments, feedback, ideas for staff? We'll go first to Commissioner Caden.
12: Thank you, Chair, and um, apologies to the commission. I know we're trying to get through here, but um, I... I had a, an opportunity to go down to a, um, a conference in San Diego called Build the Middle. That was uh, last weekend. It was a very cool conference. It's all about trying to bring together the development community, policymakers, people who work in government to try to facilitate more missing middle. Um, got an opportunity to tour a bunch of ADUs down there through, that are built through their ADU bonus program, which is fantastic. I would continue to encourage us to do that. One thing I wanted to mention, um, so a big conversation at that conference was about trying to facilitate more affordable home ownership opportunities and using missing middle as a mechanism for that. And I think actually um, Commissioner Lamass, you mentioned this um, last time we talked about this was there's a bill, AB um, uh, 1033, I think. Don't quote me on that. Um, that was passed in this last session that essentially allows for local governments to um, elect to sell and or convey um, ADUs through separate sale, through, through colonization. Um, and to me, it's a it's a really interesting idea. There's probably lots of kinks to work out there, um, but I think it's something that I would love to see us um, look into and per- perhaps in the ordinance updates to comply with <clears throat> state legislation. I know it's not complying because this is an elective program, but that might be a really cool opportunity for us to, to look into that and kind of roll that into that omnibus update. Um, if for anything um, that I had conversations with my peers uh, down in San Diego and there's an existing bet for what city will be the first one to enact it. So I hope that it's us. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Caden. Commissioner Young. Uh,
19: Thank you again for the report. Um, Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Just wanted to thank you for the... I think kind of towards the end of the report, you have a list of all the questions generated by the Planning Commission and really kind of took the time to summarize um, answers and you know the affordable housing one that I brought up like last session, you already had a response, and here's a link. you know the study's been done, and I'm like, thank you so much for for just responding so quickly and um, just being thoughtful of just helping us. So thank you very much. Um, on the educational campaign for affordable housing, um, is that, is that a planning staff led type of uh, campaign or are you planning on maybe bringing in some other affordable housing developers or, you know, um, community outreach folks who, who are kind of aware of affordable housing to kind of help with that educational
21: campaign? Um, we're certainly wanting to coordinate with the Sacramento housing Alliance. They do with a tour, um, But um, certain open ideas, um, even considering working with a consultant, um, potentially, um, to make it effective, I got to say, uh, the Management Academy provided, they had a a small group breakouts for every single department that presented to them on a prompt. And so my prompt, as I said before, was uh, the infill and affordable housing. And their presentation and their suggestions on how to engage community was, I'd say, better than input I could get from a consultant in many respects. Yeah. So um, so we also have a uh, resident artist now in our department for the next year, and so that will be one of the things she'll be working on as well and trying to make a, a lot of this information uh, engaging and accessible. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I think
19: that's that's excellent. I, I would also... Um just as you guys are, are doing your missile missing middle ordinance, missing middle ordinance, um, you know, and I we've, we've talked about this before, um, and again, it's, it depend it takes two to dance, but to the degree that we can reach out to the private development community, um, and, and I think also, because when we think about affordable housing, we think about TCAC and, and whatnot, and, and that can be very cumbersome, and I think that tends to kind of scare people away, right? Because it's such a, complex program um and i think that what you guys are trying to establish here locally right is a much more simplified program of how to establish affordable housing and so i think to the degree that we can um, continue to court um, private developers and to kind of convince them like hey we really want to create a very simple approach to developing affordable housing we think you have a, a role in this and um whatever we can do to help, help make this um, conceptually not, not difficult and, and say, hey, like this, this makes sense. I think that that's, that could be part of the efforts as well. I think the general public definitely needs, to, needs buy-in. I think one of the, the concerns, I think we want to continue to try to address concerns, which is property values, like you mentioned, is it going to affect my property values? Is it going to um, make my neighborhood less safe? Um, and so I think being able to address fears and concerns um, that I think the people who have done it for years can, can identify what those, those laundry list items are and, and they have already prepared responses. And I, I, I applaud you for just um, identifying other par- potential partners and continue to do so. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Commissioner Young. Any additional questions or comments for staff? Hearing and seeing none, uh, staff recommends approval of uh, this item to forward to City Council. So we do need a motion and a second for this one. Um, so commissioners, I'm looking for a motion and a second. Commissioner Young. I motion. Thank you. We have a motion by Commissioner Young to forward to City Council and Commissioner Messias reed
19: Aye,
4: 2nd
1: We'll second. Clerk, will you please call the roll?
0: Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Zhang. Aye. Commissioner Chase. Aye. Commissioner Lamas. Aye. Commissioner Buckley. Aye. Commissioner Caden. Aye. Commissioner Macias-Reed. Aye. Commissioner Young. Aye. Vice Chair Wallace. Aye. Commissioner Boyd. Aye. Commissioner Andrade. Aye. Commissioner Thompson is absent. And Chair Hernandez. Aye. Thank you. The motion passes.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. Now we have the last item, number five. This is the 2023 Planning and Design Commission Annual Report, M23-006, Stacia,
22: whenever you're ready. Thank you, Chair and Commissioners. Um, You'll recall that in March of this year, City Council updated its rules of procedure, and which among other things established an annual report requirement for all of the city's boards and commissions. And the goal of this annual report is to make sure that all Boards and Commissions are able to communicate their priorities and their accomplishments to Council um, and to PMPE. So the annual report is to be reviewed first by the Commission itself, then forwarded to the City's Personnel and Public Employees Committee, or PMPE, and then moved on to Council. So this item, uh, the annual report, was on the Commission's agenda on September 28th for review and comment. Uh, In response to the comments that were provided by the Commission that evening, I've updated the report and provided some additional new information, incorporated that in, it's included in your uh, packet, it's attachment three. Again, our proposal, staff, is to complete the acceptance of the 2024 work program, which you just um, took action on, and to um, incorporate that as an attachment into this annual report. The draft report that you see attached follows a template that's been provided by um, City Council and by PMPE, so we're asking this evening for your action to pass a motion forwarding the draft annual report on to PMPE for consideration. I just want to touch really briefly on the information, the new information that I added in response to comments. Um, first, uh, a couple of commissioners expressed interest in kind of finding out what has happened to some of the projects that we've recently heard. So I went back through the agendas for 2023. Um, and provided an update and attachment for as to to the status of those projects, if known. Um, One thing that is pretty clear is maybe not so much time has passed, so there hasn't been a lot of movement on some of these projects. especially if they require maps or subsequent entitlements. But the information is there, and you're always, of course, welcome to contact staff if you have questions or follow-up about a project that kind of stuck with you and you want to know what's going on. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't, but we can share with you um, the, what's going on as far as we know. And then, um, second, uh, Vice Chair Wallace had ad- had an inquiry about... Um, the current planning staffing side of things. And so I included some more information in the report related to um, the current planning section and our volume of work there. So we process all of the private development project applications, some of which you see and most of which you don't. It's almost like an iceberg, you know. Um, So um, due to a lot of the efforts um, over the past five years or so to streamline the planning process for compliant projects, A lot of projects don't come here to the commission any longer. They're decided either um, by staff or at the director level. And so at the 12-month period that I looked at, um, we processed over 700 applications and only about 7% of them came to the commission, uh, which represents um, just under 50 projects. So it's I think that's pretty good. So finally, I, I just made a few other minor adjustments in the in the report to reflect our current numbers, updates for October, things like that. And with that, um, I'm open for any of your comments or questions, and um, would ask for a motion to move this item on to PMP. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Planning Director Cosgrove. But first, we'll go to public comments. Um, Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item?
0: Thank you, Chair. I have no speaker slips on this item.
1: Thank you, we'll close public comment period and bring the discussion back to the dais. Commissioners, do you have any questions or comments for staff? Commissioner Chase.
5: Um, I move that we uh, uh, vote to pass on the, uh, <coughs> the report to, does uh, it go to uh, Council or? Uh,
1: PMPE? thank
5: you. Yeah, P-M-P-E, uh Commission.
1: Great, thank you, we have a motion by Commissioner Chase. Thank you very much. Vice Chair Wallace.
3: Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, Comment and I'll second, Um, (laughs) I'm glad that we included the data on how much work the staff do in comparison to how much comes to us. Because I wanted to see uh, how much the streamlining efforts have really increased throughput through the department. Um, So I wanted to thank you for that and and commend the staff for being so productive. And, And with that, I will second the motion. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you to staff as well um, for bringing this forward. Um, So we have a motion by Chase, uh, and a second by Vice Chair Wallace. Clerk, will you please call the roll?
0: Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Zhang? Aye. Commissioner Chase? Aye. Commissioner Lamas? Aye. Commissioner Buckley? Aye. Commissioner Caden? Aye. Commissioner Macias-Reed?
4: Aye.
0: Commissioner Young? Aye. Aye. Commissioner Wallace? Aye. My apologies, Vice Chair Wallace. Uh, Commissioner Boyd? aye. Commissioner Andrade? Aye. Mr. Thompson is absent. And Chair Hernandez? Aye. Thank you. The motion passes.
1: That concludes our discussion calendar. We'll move on to Commissioner comments, ideas, and questions. Um, I have a few comments I wanted to make. First of all, thank you, Vice Chair Wallace, for uh, taking over the reins um, in my absence for the last month. I really appreciate you. Um, Second reminder for the public and for the commissioners, we have a special meeting on Wednesday. Our normal meetings are on Thursdays, but we will be meeting the next, uh, on, next on Wednesday, the 29th of November, where we're gonna have a robust discussion on the general plan. Um, and then after that, that's our second to last meeting of the year. Um, we'll then have our, our last meeting on the 14th, which will also be um, a heavy agenda. Um, also, reminder to start thinking now uh, for 2024, um, as you recall, with the new ordinance, um, the election of the chair and the vice chair are now on a calendar year, so that election will occur in January. Um, so those are my uh, comments for today. Do commissioners have any additional comments, ideas? Commissioner Boyd.
20: Boyd. A game of touch, touch, touch fall. Um, I'm going to ask again. I want to ask, not again, but I'm going to ask uh, for uh, Chair Hernandez who may have uh, not been able to hear my comments at the end of last meeting. Is there any opportunity for this commission to get one of those very nifty pullover shirts that I saw the YPSI commission wearing uh, in their last or meeting within the last month? And that would be a question, I'm um, looking at Jacob, since he answered the question last time, stating that Gipsy uh, had had or has a budget, and that's how they were able to afford their shirt. So I'm just asking, if you had not seen those shirts, they are just absolutely fantastic.
1: Commissioner Boyd, I appreciate the pride in the Planning Commission. Did you say polo shirts?
20: Well, I just use polo as uh, a <laughs> deference for pullover. Uh, I well, should have pullover. said pullover okay. and not... Pullover. Uh, Okay. Uh, advertising anybody? My apologies, but thank you for correcting that. I will
1: defer to staff. <laughs>
0: um, I don't believe those um, those items were um, paid for or obtained by the office of the city clerk. I believe that was uh, something that uh, commission staff did for that commission. Uh, so I, you would need to speak with uh, uh, commission staff, uh, uh, Stacia Cosgrove, to. Facilitate
20: that. Thank you so much, Office of the Clerk. Stacia, I'll be calling you tomorrow. (laughs) Just kidding.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Chair. Tomorrow's the holiday, so you can call her (laughs) on (laughs) Monday. Okay. I think that's everything for tonight. Oh, excuse me. Public comments, matters not on the agenda.
0: Thank you, Chair. I have one speaker slip uh, for matters not on the agenda. Uh, Ms. Sharon Grego. Oh
10: no.
23: Um, just for one slight second, uh, just one slight second. Uh, when you spoke, uh, thank you for giving me a chance, all of you, to speak tonight. Uh, just for a little second. Um, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the developer at the moment that um, kind of like redid the uh, heart center at Mercy General Hospital. But he was a Greek man, uh, you know, a developer. A developer. Myself, uh, Sharon Grego, I am a second generation Croatian American. That being said, Saparevic uh, Domic developers have been around for a long long time you, you might it wouldn't hurt you could possibly it, just maybe try and contact them and now the matter of topic that i'm going to speak on for a minute uh, the uh uh, uh uh the dangerous c- conditions at the Shasta hotel in I don't know if all of you were aware, but I wasn't home when a stabbing shortly after noon. When the boss or soem told, well, it's it, it's kind of irrelevant. Any anyway, they say the boss wasn't there and had shortly before gone to lunch and da da da, and it was very horrifying to arrive in the lobby there. Where i've lived for over two years one of those was in a contract to more quickly earn the housing choices voucher that being said i still have the voucher and a meeting was cancelled no it really was but that's okay that is okay i was supposed to have a meeting today i really was at 2:30 to negotiate certain things that i shall not talk about but the good things it was something good that was going to happen for me and And I go away uh, and be somebody else. And, And they get to do that. But it's so sad that, look, we all have deficits. But when those who have unresolved things and are sent to the Shasta for whatever purpose, and then they come in and they know exactly what they're doing, and, and you just say the smallest of things or make some sm- usual joke. They make or try to make something of it that it's not. Honest to God. Now, this is ridiculous. And, and, and like that, one lady was stabbed, you know, you know, in the throat. But, you know, they say, you know, in America, anyhow, they say, you know, if you can't say something good, don't say it. But, 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 but it's, I'm not complaining, but I'm saying for a minute, the Shasta Hotel has just had that reputation of not being such a good place or a good place to go. That being said, today, <coughs> today proved that out. You know what I'm saying to you. Thank the you for your comments, with, ma'am. Uh, is still in the med center. She's still, uh, expected to survive. The other lady just got some defensive wounds when she tried to take over and help the, I mean, fight off the perpetrator person. Thank you for listening. Thank,
1: thank you, you now. Thank you so much for bringing your concerns here tonight. Um, it sounds like a very scary situation. And you stayed around City Hall and um, all night. To let us know uh, your experience, um, so we know that this is very important to you. We would love to get your contact information to be able to follow up af- to be able to follow up with you afterwards to see if there's anything we can do um, at the city level. Absolutely. Thank you so much. No thank you. That. Do we have any additional speakers? Please? I have no more speakers. Great. Thank you. That concludes um, our agenda. The meeting is adjourned at 8:56 p.m. Have a good night.
23: Okay. Sorry. <laughs> All right.